This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Chapter Tactics, your 40k podcast which focuses on playing warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Petey Pop, and today I'm going to go over just a few tournaments that took place over the past two weeks. There were a lot of them. There, there, was, there was an insane amount. I had to take out all my fingers and toes, and I still couldn't count them all. Um, so I'm just going to cherry-pick the ones that I thought were the biggest, the, with the largest amount of people, the most rounds, uh, the GTs. Uh, then I'm going to express my opinion about the relationship between paint competitions and 40k tournaments. Finally, I'm going to bring in my guest for this show, Matt from Mini Wargaming. We're going to have a great conversation about what it takes to prepare for a fun, competitive game of 40k that leaves both people satisfied with the end result. There's going to be a lot of stuff there, a lot of good stuff there in that main topic, so stay tuned for that. Obviously, Matt, being an experienced wargamer and a video battle report maker for 40k specifically and other games uh that's a topic that he's very intimate with and his uh business and his living basically revolves around making good entertaining battle reports so it should be a lot of fun uh, but before we get to all that i'd like to briefly explain what this podcast is about so chapter tactics is a competitive 40k podcast that means that i focus on tactics I focus on tournament news, I focus on army lists, but more importantly, I tr- I shy away from the hobby aspect of this and obviously this episode is going is going to um be be a rare exception when I talk about painting and paint judging and paint scoring, but I shy away from the hobbying aspect of Warmer 40K and I really dive into the tactics and list building and army matchups and what you can do to make yourself a better player. Not so you can win GTs and, and go to large events and you know compete with all the best players. That, that's not what the point of this podcast is about. The point of this podcast is to make you, you yourself listening in your car or in your living room or, or at your painting desk a, a better player. And, and that's not because you're a bad player necessarily. Um, but in the past, I've always felt like people talk about games and they when, when they talk about what they did wrong or or maybe a bad game that they mentioned a lot of times people like to blame dice uh or people maybe wonder why their armies aren't doing too well you know why they, these models that they these beautifully painted models that they love so much are always dying right so this podcast also caters to those people uh, not so not so you can win tournaments but just so you can have fun you the most important part of 40k is the gaming experience aspect and one one aspect of that is taken away it, it detracts from the game and it makes it really unfun and that you know uh, if you if you continue with that toxicity like in 6th and 7th edition where the game was really bad uh, it'll eventually kill the game so i'm just doing my little part to bring everyone closer to the game so that's what this podcast is about you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to make you a better player, and hopefully you can learn something. And in return, you can go to tournaments, go to your local game store, go to your friend's garage, teach them what you, you know. Or if you've been getting your butt kicked, maybe I taught you something, and maybe, you know, the next time you play, 
you won't get rolled and you'll, you'll have a great time playing the game and you'll see why people love going to these tournaments and why people love playing the game. Um, so I try to encompass the all aspects of the competitive or, or gaming aspect of the hobby, um, which is why I made this podcast. Uh, I feel like I feel a really unique niche. Um, a lot of the 40k podcasts are more hobby or lore oriented. So Anyways, that's the point of this podcast. I've gotten a lot of new subscribers and new listeners lately, so I thought I would just reiterate what the point of this podcast is and what I drive forwards every week. Also, I I, I try to keep on schedule. I, I, I already announced the last episode. There's a link to it in the show notes. I, I'm trying my best to do a weekly schedule, and I also try my best to have a different guest on every week. Uh, obviously, if you listened to last week's episode... That's not the case this month. Um, I basically, I, I've had three, lar- I'm traveling to three events that are all very, very far away. I At the beginning of the month, I traveled to Nova. I just came back from Alaska, and I'll talk about Battlezone Urza in my tournament news coverage. And, of course, next week, after you guys are, you guys are going to be listening to this on the 25th or the 20th, on the 25th. So next week, at the end of the month, I'm going to be traveling to Bartlesville, Oklahoma for the Iron Halo, uh, which actually just hit 100 players, which is crazy. All of these events I'm going to be talking about pretty soon, they are all under 100 players, but they're all hovering around that major mark, which is 64 players. So it, it, hitting 100 players, especially before your event starts, is is crazy. That that's rarely ever happens, and Iron Halo is quickly becoming one of the go-to events to go to to visit, uh, especially because it's it's in the heat of of the 40k season right now. That's that's where we are. It, 40k the 40k season Nova is pretty much the middle of it, you know, because you have the summer, the end of the summer, August events where there's a lot of events in August. And then you have Nova at the beginning of September, and then you have a driving amount of events up until. I want to say November when things start slowing down in the holidays and then things pick up a little bit and then the LVO happens and then that's that's it that's the ITC season. So it's it's really cool how we're developing seasons and there's like tournament traveling months where a lot of people tend to travel and you see a lot of the same names and a lot of the same faces at different events depending on your region. So that's really cool. I like to see that grow. Last year it it grew a lot and I noticed it and this year I see the trend continuing. So next year, we'll have a big tournament season. Maybe we'll have a big tournament season blog post or something where we talk about uh, the midpoint, et cetera, et cetera. But, or maybe I'll do that next episode. Yeah, I think, I think I'm going to try and find time for that next episode. That's a, good, that's a good topic. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent. Let's get to tournament news. The first tournament I'm going to be talking about is the Battle in the Bush, the fifth annual Battle in the Bush, or it might be the fifth Battle in the Bush. It is Battle in the Bush 5. So I'm assuming there's either a fifth annual or it's the fifth one. Doesn't matter. In Battle in the Bush in Australia, New South Wales. I remember it la- I remembered it last year. It was a big event last year. It was an even bigger event this year. They hit 60 people, which is crazy that uh, in that they finished with that amount. So they might have actually started with more than that, but in the ITC or in the Best Coast Pairings Player app, which if you're wondering where I'm getting all these tournament coverage, go to the Best Coast Pairings Player app. Download that app for your smartphone, iPhone, or Android. You can see all the latest lists with a, a an easy monthly subscription. You can see all the lists of people winning. You can follow along with me. It, it's it's just such a great tool, especially especially for me personally, as someone who covers tournaments. It, it it really helps out. It's it's where I get all my big lists. It's where I look at the the meta trends. Um, which if if you're curious, 
Guard are everywhere right now. They're quickly becoming the uh, Battle Company and the Death Star and the Chaos Space Marine. Or it's not Chaos Space Marine. The Chaos Demon Flying Circle or, or whatever whatever call you. Riptide Wing. They're becoming the meta trend, which, which is Guard and Chaos Space Marines too. Uh, so, so just keep that in mind. There's going to be a lot of Guard that I talk about in this tournament coverage. But anyways, Best Ghost Pranks Player app. So it's a great app, especially if you want to just look at lists and you want to see what people are winning with and doing well with. I highly, highly recommend it. The subscription isn't that bad. The subscription keeps those guys going. And the more people subscribe, the better the app will become, which is awesome. Anyways, Battle in the Bush. Australia New South Wales, uh, historically a very, very competitive scene. Adam Napier last year came down from Australia. He was easily the... I think he, he was e either easily or or kind of easily, the best ITC player in Australia. So Adam Napier did a great job. He came down to the LVO, unfortunately did not win the whole thing. Uh, he was shooting for the best ITC, the ITC champion, which is, which is, if you're listening, the ITC champion is the guy who wins the most tournaments, gets the most ITC points, and the ITC culminates into this grand you know, season finale at the Las Vegas Open where the winner of the ITC season for the year wins gets a $2,000 check from us, Frontline Gaming, from the ITC. It's this big deal. Uh, the, the winner is someone who, who really deserves it, you know, especially because the, usually the winner has to make the top eight at the Las Vegas Open, which is a 400, 500-person tournament uh, with a top eight single elimination bracket. So it's usually it's usually quite an accomplishment. Uh, anyways, Simon Gajkovic, maybe he might come out to the Las Vegas Open. Simon, I'm calling you out. I've seen you on Facebook a few times, uh, but he actually won with Harlequins, and unfortunately, his list was unable to load on the BCP Player app. Uh, I think maybe there was an issue with downloading it or with him uploading it. I have no idea, but unfortunately, I don't have his list for you guys. But he won with Harlequins. I, I imagine if he was Harlequins primary, he had a lot of Skyweavers, which are their shooting transporting vehicles. Um, no, Sky Starweavers. Skyweavers are the bikes. Starweavers. I imagine he had a lot of Star Weavers, Harlequin Troops with kisses or caresses. I, I don't know. I hear a lot of debate between going back and forth between the Harlequin players about which one of those is better. Uh, probably Fusion Pistols, which are very, very popular. Maybe a Solitaire. Maybe some Eldar allies, some Inari Eldar allies. Maybe they were Inari Harlequins. I have no idea. But Harlequins uh, winning a 60-person event in Australia is, is actually really cool. They, they are historically not a very competitive army, but they are a beautiful, well-loved army that a lot of players like to play uh, for, for you know, aesthetic reasons. So it's cool to see them in the tournament scene. It's cool to see them win an event this big. And then the other undefeated player going 5-0 is Ian Andrew, who is a really good player. He's, is, uh, he's, named, he's a name I know well. Uh, he did well with Guard. I imagine probably the usual suspects, Conscript, Commissars. Uh, the Toroxes, probably some Militarum, Tempestus, or Elysians, Deep Striking Down, maybe some Artillery, you know, the usual. That's usually the guard lists that you see the most of. So so when I say a guard player wins, you can just safely assume that they had some combination of, of all of the things that make guard really strong right now. So th those are your two undefeated players. Rounding out your top five, Kieran Howard with Chaos Space Marines, Hayden Ford with Imperial Knights, which is pretty cool. Hayden Ford actually demolished all of his opponents going 19 and getting 19 victory points every single one of his games and lost one game which i imagine was probably his worst matchup 
probably got someone in the fourth round who could just beat up Knights, and then he probably got tabled. Uh, and then William Wyckoff, who uh, was playing Space Marines. Maybe maybe Gilliman, maybe no Gilliman. There's two Space Marine lists right now. There's Gilliman Space Marines, uh, which are which play completely different from the uh, Raven Guard Space Marines, which are, are also completely different. Uh, those I think those are the two Space Marine lists right now. Raven Guard Space Marines tend to get in your face, and they deep strike, and they, with Lias Isodon, uh, and then they move around. Uh, obviously, Lias Isodon is a Raptors chapter tactic, so he can't use the stratagem, but he can deep strike units. And then Raptors, or Raven Guard Space Marines can out or can uh, infiltrate with their strike from the shadows stratagem and you can infiltrate a bunch of them so a lot of lists try to put space marines in their best in the best places where they can succeed and and you know it's it's really cool and then obviously gilliman there's there's a few gilliman lists but almost all of them are gunline lists because he just he just fits a gunline so well he he's anti he, he is the command points he brings the buffs uh and he's anti counter assault he can also reach out kill things, take over the center of the board. He's great. Uh, I don't need to go too much into how good Gilliman is. He's a really good model. Uh, but that's it. That's your top five. And it looks like it was a really fun event. If you guys attended, if one of my listeners attended the Battle in the Bush, or if you're the TO for the Battle in the Bush, hit me up. I'd love to hear more about it. I love hearing tournament news and coverage and those stories, uh, you know, who beat who, any intriguing things, interesting calls, etc., etc. That's all really fun. Moving on to Come the Apocalypse in Fanatics Enterprise in Enterprise, Alabama, which is cool. Uh, Michael Lee won that event with actually a really ex- extremely interesting list. Uh, so the War Games Con was won by uh, Character Spam Assassin list, uh, which is which is notorious. It actually wasn't won by this. This is actually won by Inari, and the two undefeated players were Inari and Gene Sealer Colt. Uh, but the best overall list, which is actually the third place list. And the list that got the most uh, notoriety, uh, specifically from Be- uh, Bell of Lost Souls post, w- was a character spam list with a lot of assassins, Drago, Gilliman, St. Celestine, and some sisters, I think, cowering in a corner uh, to fill out one of the detachment slots. Anyways, it's g- got, a lot of, got a lot of hate online. Um, it, it, it's not a list that you see very commonly in, the ch- in this tournament scene. I think it's one of those... Those uh, hidden boogeymen that that people will talk about, but you'll rarely actually see it in an event, kind of like knights. Anyways, Michael Lee had a, an extremely weird Grey Knights list. So, you know, it's a weird Grey Knights list when the first four models are each 285 points, and they're all Grandmaster Nemesis Dread Knights. So that 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 already right there, that's that's strange. Uh, so he brought. Four Nemesis Dread Knights, Grandmaster Nemesis Dread Knights, and a Supreme Command Detachment, a Vanguard Detachment with a Primary Psyker, four Astropaths, and two Calexus Assassins, and then another Vanguard Detachment with St. Celestine, five Eversor Assassins, and another Calexus Assassin for a grand total of six Command Points. Wow. Uh, that, that is, that is a, such a strange, strange list. Actually, I need to... Look at my Grey Knights Codex real quick, and I need to see if actually I'm gonna do that later. Uh, but but I'm sure you guys are already looking at it. You guys already know. But I think I think Grandmaster Nemesis Dread Knights. They obviously have the character special rule, but do they have nine wounds or less? I know Dreadnoughts have nine wounds or less, but do Dread Nemesis Dread Knights do? I don't think they do. I think I I, I would bet a lot of money that that a Nemesis Dread Knight is harder to kill than a regular Dreadnought. 
and therefore should be over 10 wounds. But I don't know. Anyways, he won with them, which is which is crazy. That's that's an insanely weird list. And uh, the five Eversore Assassins don't make any sense at all. The three Klexus Assassins do. They make a lot of sense. They're really good. They're really good models. You put them out front, especially in a character-only list, like the one that won the best over at War Games Con, and your opponent's shooting at one, maybe two models, hitting on sixes, you know, with a four-up invuln. It, it's it's nasty. It's rough. So Michael Lee had the right idea. I, I'd love to hear, Mike, if you're out there, if you're listening to this podcast, or if you're a buddy of Michael Lee, uh, have him hit me up on Facebook or email me at frontlinegamingpdpab at gmail.com. I'd love to pick his brain to see w- what he was thinking when he wrote and played that list. A- anyways, your, your second and third place players were Mark Perry playing Black Legion and Carter Leach playing Eldari. Carter Leach actually made the top eight last this year at the Las Vegas Open, or last ITC season. He, he lost, unfortunately, in the first round uh, to... Dan Platt of Canada Land, who was running Chaos Demons. So Carter Leach, no surprise that he was running Eldari, which is uh, an army he's v- intimately familiar with. He runs all different variants of Eldari lists, and he's probably been doing it for a while, too. He's a really nice guy. Uh, and then Mark Wilkins with Imperium, Imperial Soup. You can you can bet that there's Conscripts and Gilliman somewhere in that Imperium army. And then Anthony Hinkle running Death Guard, uh, probably the new Death Guard, so I'm kind of surprised that that he he actually he w- got fifth place, which is cool. The new Death Guard are really really strong right now. Um, but actually, no, this was before the Death Guard Codex came out, or I think this was release weekend for the Death Guard Codex, because this was on the 10th. Let me just check real quick. Uh, this was on the fifth, 16th, the 16th. So last week. So yeah, Death Guard came out. So yeah, this was not new Death Guard. This is old Death Guard. Uh, so basically he got fifth place with old death guard. So Anthony Hinkle's list probably got really scary. Uh, he probably added Mortarian has some, some plague Marines in there. So anyways, that's really cool. Moving on to the next tournament. We have attack X 40 K 2017 in Cam Cam loops, Canada, British Columbia, Canada. The coolest thing about this one is Jeff Everett won with Orcs. So I'm going to actually take a second to pull up his list. Okay, his list has... Uh, hold on, give me a second. There's a phallic symbol on his list drawn on. It's actually really well sketched. Anyways, uh, there is... Uh, sorry. Um, there are Big Mechs, a Big Mech on a Bike, Gazgothraka, Weird Boy, a lot of boys, specifically 90 boys with... or, or uh, you know, actually 67 boys and three knobs, or actually uh, 87 boys and three knobs. Anyways, you get the point. Three units of 30 boys, bunch of big guns, the uh, Grok gunner with the cannons, and then a Supreme Contan- Command Detachment with five weird boys, and then another Supreme Contan- Command Detachment with Mad Doc Grotznik, uh, and then the, one, uh, sorry, one of the Supreme Command Detachments has Mad Doc Grotznik, the other has Zad- Zardsnark the Ripper. Uh, and four weird, three more weird boys, and boss Snickrot, and then a unit of commandos with a boss knob and a big chopper. So he's he's got a grand total of six, seven, eight, nine weird boys, and he won. Jeff Everett, that kudos to you. That is a strange orc list. He didn't win with Stormboy spam or the Gargantuan Swigoth. He ran with with Smite spam orcs essentially. Um, 
that's really cool, actually. I, I know a lot of Orc players are probably... I think Orc players are probably going to be split about that decision. Half of them are going to go, yay, Orcs won a GT, and the other half are going to go, well, he ran with Smites, he won with Smites, ma'am. So, you know, but uh, you got to hand it to Jeff Everett. He he, he had he brought eight weird boys, and he won with Orcs. I, I think that's a victory in general, considering Orcs haven't won a 57-person GT in an extremely long time. And at least two editions, maybe more. So, Orcs, Jeff Everett, congratulations. Uh, Matthew Toes came in second place with Astra Militarum, probably the usual sus suspects. Rupert can't... Actually, I'll just look at his list right now. Yeah, the usual... Uh, t three Tempestor Primes, a bunch of Tempestus Scion squad, a lot of Tempestus Scion squads. It's, it's going to be uh, one five Tempestus Scion squads and three Command squads, uh, three Torox Primes, a Serastus Knight Castigator, so the shooty knight with the sword, and then three Stormhawk Interceptors. So that's actually kind of an interesting guard list. That's an interesting take. He decided to, to put everything on the board, make everything on the board really hard to kill, uh, and the Toroxes, and then just drop down and kill stuff. That's actually a pretty good list. Uh, and he also went undefeated as well. Rupert, Candle, Rupert Campbell with Eldari, specifically Harlequin. El he actually had Eldari soup. He brought Ivrain, the Incarn, a Farseer, Two troops, two troop masters, a unit of troops with the Star Weaver, two units of troops with the Star Weaver with three fusion pistols each, some Cabalite warriors, and two units of Shadow Spectres, which are dirty. Shadow Spectres are so good. The Forge World Eldar models, um, if you look them up, Shadow Spectres are crazy. They can they can shoot essentially three times with their gun, um, which is already a really powerful gun. Uh, a Hemlock Wraith Fighter, Dark Reapers, and a Wave Serpent probably. For Shadow Spectres or Dark Reapers or whatever, right? You can stick you can stick a lot of stuff in the Wave Serpent. And that's a very, very nasty Eldar list. And then Nick Close with Alpha Legion. So Chaos Space Marine, probably Chaos Space Marine Soup. His list isn't listed on. And then finally, Alex McDougal. McDougal? Uh, Mc, probably McDougal. I don't, I don't know. Sorry if I mispronounce your names, guys. I apologize. There's a, a lot of a lot of interesting names here, and he actually got fifth place and lost his final game to lost his final game um, on the top table, most likely. And he he had Gene Steeler Colt, which is which is cool. He actually had Gene Steeler Colt. I can barely read his list. He had uh, some a Tyranid detachment with Tyranid Gene Steelers and a Broodlord, and then looks like some Tempestus Sons and some Wyverns. And then Gene Sealer Colt Primary with Neophyte Hybrids, a Goliath Truck, which is rare seat, and then Knight Commander Pask. Knight Commander. Oh, he's in the he's in the guard detachment. Yep, yeah, and then two Maguses. So so he actually barely he, he's actually more of a, a Tyranid soup list, not an actual Gene Sealer Colt list, but Gene Sealer Colt was his primary. And that is that for Attack X forty K in Canada. That's that was actually I, I like that orcs I really like that orc list. Jeff, if you're if you're on Facebook, hit me up, buddy. Um, that that orc list is really funny. <laughs> Eight weird boys. Finally, finally, the harvester of souls. I wanted to save this for last before I talked about Battlezone Ursa. Um, there's Colin Sherman. So Colin Sherman won this, and actually, the, this is the very very uh, kind of touching anecdote that Colin shared with me on email. And uh, he, he listens to my podcast, so he's probably listening to this right now. So uh, Colin. Uh, essentially, Colin w didn't play 40k at all in the past four since He said since third edition. So Colin hasn't played forever. And then he started playing Age of Sigmar with his kids, 
which is crazy that Age of Sigmar brought him into this game. So Colin's playing Age of Sigmar with his kids, right? And this is this is recent. This is uh, he said in this year, the be- you know at the beginning of the year he was playing Age of Sigmar with his kids, and that got him back into 40k, uh, which is already great. So so he's Colin's get, gets back into 40k. You know he, he's pumped. He's excited. Uh, he gets through the ITC. Uh, find meet some people in the ITC and that he used to play with, and then he starts going to events, right? So he, you know he's goes to events. He's he's playing guard. He's doing pretty well with it. Um, finally he goes to the harvester, the harvester, which is which is a the harvester of souls, which is a huge event. That's a a a major. Um, they had they ended with sixty people. Um, but I think they had I think they he says he says seventy. I think it's probably misquotes because they ended it with sixty. Um, but either way, that that's four four people shy of a major. That's a, that's a huge event. That's the Harvester Souls in Spokane, Washington. That it's a very very competitive scene. There are a lot of really good players there. I was looking through the list of the names that Colin had to play and beat, and man, he he especially especially his last game against I he beat John Paul Moet, um, who did kind of take a little bit of a hiatus last ITC season. But if you don't know JP JP of Mugu Legion, he two years ago and three years ago won best in faction in the ITC for two factions. Uh, the first one was Eldar and Chaos Demons, which which is crazy. I mean, those were two the two most competitive factions, right? But he got he was the best Eldar player throughout the whole season, not just not just for one tournament, for the whole season, and the best Chaos Demons player. And the next year it was best Eldar and best Renegades player, which of course were two really good really good lists but not not taking away anything from JP because those lists were were uh, with the exception of the Renegade list those lists were lists people were prepared for especially Eldar you know the Eldar were were the the evil the evil tournament lists that everyone hated right so so the fact that Colin Sherman had not played 40k since 3rd edition started playing Age of Sigmar and then got into 8th edition when 8th edition came out and it's now won a huge event in the Harvester of Souls. Colin Sherman, uh, when I read that, I, I was I was really touched and I was really, really, really happy, you know, that someone, the 8th edition brought someone of this caliber back into the hobby, back into the game, right? So so that's, that's really cool. I just wanted to bring that up real quick before I talked about his list. Uh, his list, unfortunately, Colin, I'm sorry, buddy. Um, you were running a guard. He's running guard. He's running the usual suspects guard. Uh, so he was running, uh, guard, but, but he did do really well with it. And, um, I think Colin had the right idea and he didn't try to, to run anything fancy like eight weird boys, um, or, or night castigate or anything like that. He just, he brought a tried and true tournament list, uh, put his little oh, spin on it. He'd add some ogrins, put his little flair to it that, that he needed maybe a meta decision. Maybe he just loved ogrins. Uh, he did tell me that. He didn't finish painting the army yet, so he's probably going to change it up for SoCal Open, which is which is good uh, because he's improving and he's growing his army. But, uh, you know, did really well. He did exactly what newer players who want to be really competitive should do, uh, which is you run a a list that that's unfortunately you can call it a net list or a tournament or a, uh, yeah, a net list is probably the most common, um, but a standard tournament list, and then you start practicing with that and you get a feel for for what you like or what the meta is or you know and and what your matchups are and then you can branch out from there right so you, you start with your Astro Militarum start with your good solid tournament list and what works and then you you start that's when you start figuring out what 
what you want to add in. Maybe you want to switch factions, uh, whatever you want to do, whatever the case may be. So anyways, Colin, congratulations, buddy. Uh, winning the Harvester Souls, being the only undefeated player, that's a huge accomplishment. Uh, we have second place Josh Johnston with Harlequins, uh, Stephen Hitch or Hike with uh, Chaos Soup, Mason Moore, who is another really, really good orc player. He's always, always in the running for best orcs player no matter what. Uh, got fourth, pla th fourth place with orcs, of course, and then Matt Johansson, Johansson with Eldari uh, from Team Zero Comp Map. Congratulations. And that is it for the Harvester of Souls. Finally, I want to talk about Battles on Ursa. I know this is going on. Tournament usage normally doesn't go on this long, but I had a lot of events to cover, so um, got to give me a little bit of a break. But Battles on Ursa was a much smaller event than a lot of these events, but I'd still like to cover it anyways. Um, not only because I attended the event, uh, but because Alaska put their best best foot forward um, for an event, and they got a lot of people to come out to the event. It's the largest event in Alaska, and they did a really good job. Jonathan Quinnell and Nate. They did a fantastic job TOing it, and I, I just I wanted to give a shout out and give credit where credit is due. Uh, they got a convention, they got a lot of people together, and they're growing. And scenes anywhere for for 40k or any wargaming scene like that that are growing, especially in small towns, I encourage you guys all to go out and visit those conventions, visit those budding tournament scenes, and, and promote them. You know, no no matter no matter where you are, no matter how small it is. Uh, because there, there's going to be maybe one or two people that you bring in, and then they're going to reach out and branch out and bring in people from small towns, and then those small towns are going to travel to bigger events, and it just it grows the hobby, right? It, it grows, it grows the game, it, it grows 40k, uh, which in turn brings GW more revenue, which in turn gives them more flexibility and, and gives them more drive to add new things and change things and listen to us and, and you know add new models which i mean for those for those of you who don't play space marines maybe you don't want gw to add more space marines um but hey maybe maybe xenos players will get a bone every now and then i know gw likes to favor space marines and chaos too to an extent um but growing helping gw grow can only help us not hurt us i i feel personally uh so Anyways, Battlezone Ursa. Rob Porter won the whole thing. I actually lost to him on the final table. I ended up placing fourth or fifth. I think I placed fifth place. Um, so I ended up losing to Rob Porter in the final table. Uh, and I just I just want to say I had... My list was a Gilliman gunline list with uh, four Wyverns, a Thunderfire Cannon, a Quad Launcher, a Rapier Quad Launcher, and then some Mortar Teams sprinkled in there with a Klexus Assassin, Four Grey Knight Strike Squads, or two Grey Knight, two units of Grey Knight, ten men Grey Knight Squad that split up into four, and then two units of ten Scouts that split up into four Scouts, and that, that was pretty much my, my list. Oh, and three Cyclopses. Those, those things. For those of you who don't know what the Cyclops is, it's a little guard vehicle that you drive around, and then it blows up and it shoots two D6 last cannons to everything within D6 inches in your shooting phase, and it doesn't count as being killed. It's it's hilarious. They were the my Cyclopses were MVPs for me every game they're only 40 points so they're really cheap and no one's running them so I, I don't know why more people aren't using this model every single game my little 40 point cyclopses acted like 500 point imperial knights and land raiders that needed to be dealt with so it's re it's really cool to have a, a little 40 point model that's both fun and puts a lot of pressure on your opponent and has a lot of board presence for being such a little tiny model and so 
anyways, I love them. I, I'm getting really good with them. Uh, I think I think they're my secret sauce. So if you guys have Cyclopses, use them. They're really fun too. And you can make them Elysian so they deep strike down. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Anyways, so I, every single one of my games that I played, uh, I played all amazing opponents. Uh, round one, I played uh, an Astra Militarum guard list with seven orbital bombardments, which is, which if you don't know what an orbital bombardment is in 8th edition, it's essentially you pick a point, and then on a 4-up you do D3 mortal wounds to everything within an X amount of inches of that point. Right, so the Space Marine one I think is just 6 inches, you pick a point, every unit within 6 inches suffers D3 mortal wounds on a 4-up. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, hey, that doesn't sound too good. You're right, it doesn't really sound that good, but when you start putting seven down, you know, he had he had three Damocles Command Rhinos, Luft Huron, his Warlord, the Space Marine Warlord for the Orbital Bombardment for the Stratagem, and then uh, two Masters of the Fleet, which I think only do it to one unit, but it doesn't matter, you usually do that to the unit that's that's about to die. Um, so that was that was crazy. He basically, I deploy all my wyverns and the Thunder of Arcan and Tech Marine kind of together, and then usually Gilliman goes with them to buff them. In this case, I didn't put Gilliman next to him because I I wanted my opponent to choose between wiping out my gun line or killing Gilliman, which which is he chose wisely, I think still. Um, but Gilliman did end up winning me that game by getting into his line and getting his Emperor's Will objective single-handedly, and basically winning the game for me. Uh, good job, Gilliman. So, anyways, I did win that game by one point, um, which is a trend. Actually, four out of my five games were decided by one point, and I would argue that my closest game was the game I didn't win by one point. I actually won by one with max points, um, which which is uh, actually I think that's a lot of fun. I had a great time, which is kind of the reason why I had such a good time at the event because all my games were extremely close. Anyways, my second game I played Eldari. Um, I it, it was a pretty standard Eldari list. There were Wraith Guard in Wave Serpents, uh, which actually aren't that standard. Uh, th but anyways, Hemlock Wraith, two Hemlock Wraith Fighters, and that that just came down to one point. Uh, Gilman died to the Ivrain, uh, the Incarn, I'm sorry, and then one Grey Knight Strike Squad hiding in his backfield, trying to get me Linebreaker, just decided to to move and advance and get within... Uh, and get the Incarn, which is a demon. So they did three mortal wounds with a smite, uh, and they barely sniped it out. And he was actually trying to hide the Incarn from my gun line because Gilman brought the Incarn down to one wound and then died. So that was really exciting. Uh, the third game I played was against a gentleman, uh, was against a gentleman named Sterling, who, who's a really, really intelligent player, really, really nice guy. And he, he brought Chaos Space Marines. <clears throat> excuse me, um, he brought Chaos Space Marines, which a uh, really interesting Chaos Space Marine list with uh, Vindicators, only three Malefic Lords, so he wasn't spamming smites or, like normal Chaos Space Marine players do. A lot of cultists, and uh, it was it was a really fun game. My Cyclopses were actually the MVP that game, not not Gilliman, not the Whirlwinds, nothing else, um, because Gilliman died turn two like a punk. Uh, no, failed his reroll. It was, it was absolutely terrible with Savage. Uh, so Gilman died turn two. Normally when that happens, I lose. Um, but what happened was was he didn't kill one Cyclops, and that went into his Vindicator line, blew up, killed one Vindicator, brought another down to its lowest tier, and then halved, brought the last one down half its wounds. So already one Cyclops did work. And then another Cyclops next turn killed his, basically because he had Alpha Legion. So I needed to get Warlord to kind of cement my my win because Gilliman gave up Warlord, so I, I needed to get Warlord to kind of you know uh, keep that pressure on with my opponent. 
Um, so so essentially, the Cyclops blew up and killed three HQ choices. He killed the and then that got me Warlord because he didn't have any he didn't have any uh, models to jump his Warlord to. So when the Cyclops blew up, he killed three models in the center. And then the final Cyclops, kind of kind of just at that point, it already won the game. But he just you know went you know went over there and blew up a, Le a Lehman Russ and a Vindicator. Oh, he also had two Executioner Lehman Russes, two Renegade Executioner Lehman Russes too, which were doing a lot of work for him. Um, but yeah, it was a really close, fun game. I ended up winning that, obviously. My fourth game I played was against Tyranids, uh, the next day. That was a lot of fun. I guess I played against a Tyranid horde with a lot of Gene Steelers, a lot of Hormigants, a lot of Termagants, two, uh, two Malanthropes, a Broodlord. That was a really, really close game. I ended up winning that by one point. And then finally, game five, I was, uh, undefeated up to that point. I played Rob Porter, really good friend of mine. He's an admin on the Competitive 40k Facebook page with me, and he was running Admech. He had a big unit of Castellan robots, and this was this is pre-Admech Codex, obviously. It hasn't been released yet, and his list is nasty. He had six Castellan robots, four Onager Dune Crawlers, Bolisarius Call, 40 Conscripts, three Plasma Command Squad Scions with the three uh, Primes, a Commissar, and a Klexus Assassin, and that was his list. It was a brutally optimized Admech list, uh, and I had told myself previously that if I played a list like his that's, that spams Toughness 7, I wasn't going to be able to beat that list. And I knew that when I played him, I needed Gilliman to do a lot of work, which Gilliman did. I, I did through clever deployment and also use of a really nice piece of terrain in the center, I did get Gilliman into his line. I did pressure his middle, the middle of his board, um, with everything with Cyclopses, and then I kind of just weathered the storm. He did get first turn on me, which sucked, and it eventually came down to could I get Gilliman into his line, which I did do, uh, and then could Gilliman kill Belisarius Call, which he did do, uh, and I had already at that point won Maelstrom, and he had already won primary. Oh, he definitely won primary because it was uh it was heavy support choices and my army just bleeds heavy support choices right. He I think he'd won it like on the second turn, but he he'd sworn that I could come back and win it, which I I couldn't. There was no way. Um, but anyway, so he won primary, won second, I won secondary. So it came down to uh, linebreaker, which he got off a character hiding in the corner that I couldn't shoot at. Uh, and then Gilliman needed to get into his line, the only model that could and survive. Uh, kill call, which he did do. And then if Gilliman had survived. Uh, had to survive one round of shooting, which which he did not do, uh, and then the game was going to end with the with one minute left, and we both decided that if Gilman were to come back, I would win, uh, because we split the time up evenly at the very end, uh, and I gave him most of the time because we knew that if he didn't kill Gilman or if Gilman didn't get back up, I would win. But so my turn was kind of moot. My turn would you know my turn could take up like ten seconds. Um, so shot Gilman. Gilman just killed Call. He's he was a champion for me. He needed to roll four up, and I failed. And I rolled a three, which means Gilman died, which means I gave up Warlord, didn't have Linebreaker, and he won off Linebreaker, uh, which is which is a it was a really 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 close game. Um, when a game ends like that on a basically on a four up die after seven turns, that's that's a good game. It was a, it was a really fun game to play. Um, and I didn't have a command point to reroll that four up in case you guys were wondering. Uh, obviously, the game went on forever, so you tend to burn command points after a game going on for, goes on for so long for that. Uh, I probably could have saved a command point for him. That might have been one of my misplays, but I, I feel like all of my command points were being used wisely. Um, but that's it. 
That was Battlezone Ursa. It was a lot of fun. If you're in the Washington area, Seattle, Washington area, or if you're in the West Canada area, close to close to Anchorage, Alaska, it's just going next year. I know it's 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 hard to travel up there to Alaska to attend an event. Um, but if you have if you have the opportunity to go next year to Battlezone Ursa, I highly recommend it. Everyone everyone I played was really really nice. There were a lot of great people there. It was actually a really fun town. It's a really nice city. There's a lot of really good food. Um, so, anyways, that's it for Battlezone Ursa. Uh, after this, I'm going to move on to the uh, my opinion on painting, and then that's it. So, I'll see you guys right after this commercial break. Yo, get off the computer. I need to check eBay. I got an auction ending soon. Wait, what are you doing on the computer? I'm just buying some minis online. Are you saving money? Nah, dude, saving clicks. Time is money, right? Hey, what the heck was that for? Dude, you gotta buy from Frontline Gaming. They offer savings on minis every single day. Whoa, that's better than saving clicks. With all that savings, I can take a few days off of work so I can paint these minis. Ow! You gotta stop that. It hurts. You know what hurts? Spending three weeks base coning models. Save yourself some pain and get them painted by Frontline Gaming's painting studio. You know what? You've got all the answers. That's why I'm glad you're my best friend. I don't know what I'd do without you. I could never hurt you. What are you looking up on eBay? I'm uh, selling a bunch of old models. Don't really use them anymore. Why aren't you going through Frontline Gaming's secondhand store? You can get money or store credit. I think you broke my nose. I don't like your tone, mister. So I'm just going to say this. Head over to FrontlineGaming.org for more details. And I'm back, here to talk about the relationship between paint scoring and competitive 40k. Now, I, I would like to add a little caveat to this. Uh, I am not a painter, so you can go ahead and take everything I say with a grain of salt. And I think I think I will solidify uh, my ethos or or my credibility in this subject um, a little bit later because I do I do I do have a I feel like I have a very specific, unique uh, experience in in paint judging so to speak, and I'll explain that a little later. But basically, this conversation came up in uh, Facebook message chat, and it, it's always been something I've, I've wanted to talk about, and, and that is the relationship between paint scoring and competitive 40K. Uh, I am obviously, I have a competitive 40K podcast. I talk about tournament news, um, and a lot of a lot of the debate rate that rages online between players is, is best should best painted be separate from competitive 40k or not you know and a, a lot of players and a lot of players still and this isn't a bad this isn't something you know that you're wrong for thinking um, but there are a lot of players that think that best overall should be the award that everyone wins that that should be the big prestigious award that we focus on and here at the itc that's not the case right we have the best itc players done strictly off of their battle score not off of paint score. And we actually, the Renaissance Man, which is our best overall at the Bay Area Open or the SoCal Open or the Las Vegas Open, that event, uh, that that award is the uh, it's the Renaissance Man. It's not as prestigious as Best General. And, uh, you know, we get a little bit of heat for it, but I just, I, I wanted the, I just wanted to shed some light on this specific subject and um, my own personal feelings on it. Um, so first, just to clarify, I do think paint and battle scores should be completely separate. 
So when you go to a tournament, I don't feel like you. I feel like your paint score should be completely separate from your battle score, and they should actually be handled by two separate departments. Um, and the reason why I, I say that is because I feel like there's a certain apathy towards paint point judging and and actually just events in general towards uh, paint scores. I feel like uh, we're we are as a community or have been as a community uh, gotten a little bit lazy. Um, and I know this is this is a, a negative viewpoint, but I feel like it's important to say I, I come from a uh, a background in low rider car or car shows, um, which is if you don't know what a low rider is, it's it's a car with hydraulics. It's like the it's very Latin esque. Um, Latin heritage theme, but it's basically they're really nice, fancy cars. Um, and in the lowrider community, there's there's paints with you know there's all sorts of different formats, and, and it's all it's all judged judged by a paint score, quote unquote, which is actually not true. It's actually more than a paint score, right? Uh, and then it gets very very complex, and there's all these different formats and all these different awards you can win you can win best in show which is a big deal it's it's you're the best car in the show uh and then there's different categories um you know there's 80s to 84 or uh 60s to 64 65 to 70s and then in there there's like 60s street 60s street custom 60s full custom 60s radical um you know uh ford you know buicks it it's it gets real european cars it gets really really in detail and really really in depth and that's because it has to be right because you know in car shows there's no there's no you know battle between the cars right like they don't after the car show go and race their you know 200 300,000 dollar cars uh at, you know and then figure out like who the best racer is and then they combine that with the best looking car and boom you have your winner like no that's not that's not the case at all they have to design this complex paint scoring system to truly determine who the best is and that's because determining who the best is such a subjective thing and and that's where the apathy comes in that i was talking about um because you know paint rubrics for 40k i I've, everyone i've seen isn't really that complicated and there have been times when i have felt like maybe the person who won actually wasn't maybe they weren't the best painted or and specifically this is a specific event and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name any names. Um, so I, I don't want to badmouth any events because they all do such a wonderful job. But at this particular event, there was a player who had scored battle better than another player, and their army was beautiful. There was there was you know there was a it was freehand all over the entire army. It was really nicely painted. The guy had spent a lot of money to get it painted, um, which is actually a whole another separate beast. Is just should you should commissioned armies win best painted or not? Who knows? But this is actually the for the best overall score. Uh, so this guy had a really beautiful army, and someone beat him. Someone that someone that he'd gotten more battle points than on than him. Um, so f this person had gotten in a better ranking. Than him, so he should have gotten more points. And the person who got best overall over this player, over the guy with the free hand and the really nice army, uh, had unpainted models in his army, right? And his army wasn't as clearly wasn't as pretty. Uh, but for some reason, well, one guy's army was favored over another, and that paint score, that paint bias, that paint score, paint judging bias, actually cost someone the best overall award, which which is not really supposed to happen. Right. So I just I feel like I feel like we could probably do a lot better with our paint rubrics and our paint scoring system. Um, so 
that's that's kind of just what I, I wanted to talk about. Uh, <clears throat> so you can you can break you can break down paint into multiple categories to make it very very easy you could have best miniature best model and i've actually seen this at age of sigmar events um where they have the best model uh right best overall model and you leave your models out and you kind of leave your little cards next to the the models that you want judged in their particular category so if you have your big army you can go for best army um you can go for best display board if you have your display board out and you can put a little card that says i'm competing for best display board uh, and then you can go for best hero which is your big centerpiece hero unit a uh, best monster best war machine etc etc and it works really well and uh it really makes you feel like like you're you're competing you know you're you're in this paint competition where where your models matter and there were actually people who didn't who brought models specifically that they weren't using in their army and entering them into this paint competition so that they could be used and the, the armies that people brought the models that people brought that weren't being used were even prettier than the ones that were on the field which is which is in turn better for the event, right? Because you have more eye candy for player, you know, more of a spectacle for player people to come in and go, ooh, ah, what is that huge dragon thing? Um, so, so that's that's cool, and that's kind of what makes low riding this huge spectacle is all these all these cars, right? And you know, it's all this eye candy. And if you ever if you ever have a moment to Google image search, you can Google image search. You might even find my car on there. It's a '64 Buick Riviera. Um, but go just Google image search like the Las Vegas Super Show right for car clubs for low rider um and you'll you'll see gorgeous gorgeous cars um now the, there's a lot of similarities between the uh the low rider you know kind of community and their paint scoring and ours and our community um but the big thing i i see about the low rider community that i also see don't see in 40k um which is maybe good and bad um but that's in the low rider community there's something called building for points or or um you're trying to collect points and that's because there's for your car you can actually rack up points and it's very systematic and formulaic and, that, and that's cool if you want to win that's that's actually called min max it's like they're the lowrider version of min maxing um there's like lowrider casuals who just show up and want to drink beer and have a great time and then there's low riser lowrider win at all costs you know companies that that show up and they have they min max their cars and their cars don't they look good but they don't look that good they're aesthetically not very pleasing but they get a lot of points right because they have all the engraving on their undercarriage they meet all the requirements you know they have engraving on their undercarriage you, you know murals everywhere they, they meet all the little tiny criteria for points and rack up points and that's how those cars win right so those cars are kind of in some circles seen down on and in other circles seen as the the new way to low ride or the new way to win events and, and win money right so it's this, this big deal uh, in 40k, I feel like we could probably use a little more of that. Um, obviously, it, it's and the reason why the points thing is so important uh, and why you know people are trying to game the system now is because if you get the reverse, if you get you know these small rubrics that that don't have a, a lot of um, a lot of points and a, a, a lot of intricacy, uh, you get a lot of personal bias involved in the paint judging. Um, which which can also be, of course, a big problem, as I mentioned before. And w what that means is you you it, it makes it really hard to decide what uh, the best army is, right, or what the best painted army is. And that, in turn, might actually muddle, you know, your award ceremony a little bit, right? Like, you know, you, you could have, if you have just one single, you know, best painted army, um, I feel like that's not presenting the hobby in its fullest capability.
if you, I, I feel like the best way to go if you're running an event is to have different paint criteria. Um, we already do this for, for best battle score, right? We already, we already have best Xenos, best Imperium, best Chaos player. Um, why don't we have that for painting as well, right? So keep them separate. Uh, get rid of the best overall because um, I feel like the best overall is just uh, I, I personally don't like that award, period. Um, I, I feel, and the reason why is because I feel like every army should already be really well painted, right? So so every army should already be, as from, at least from a business standpoint, every army should already be at least decently painted. Um, and then everyone should already be a good sportsman. Everyone should be on their best behavior. Um, so awarding someone for best sport, someone, you know, for, for being really nice and being a, the best sportsman, um, I feel is just kind of more of a popularity contest than actually trying to encourage people to be the best sportsman. Cause it's, cause I, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I just, I don't like the idea of my opponent being nice to me so they can win something. I want my opponent to be nice to me just to, because they're a good guy and because, you know, they want to play me and they're a good sportsman, right? I just feel like everyone should act like that. There shouldn't be any incentive to act like that. It just should always be the way it is. Um, same thing for painting. So I feel like best overall kind of, kind of encourages that. That and I've seen people, you know, events that, that awarded people for being a good sport, right, for best sportsman. I've seen events where that wasn't the case and you didn't win any awards and people still acted really, people still went out of their way. You know, they, they bring candy for their opponents or they buy they buy their opponents drinks. Um, so I think people in this community already kind of don't, you know, they already are really good sportsmen. You know, I, I don't think it really matters so much um, to award that, to give that award out. Uh, and I think you should focus your awards on your prize support on other things. Right. So anyways, if, if you make, if you make two equal but separate uh, awards for best painted for painting awards and battle points, I feel like that's probably the way to go. Um, so, you know, you have your best overall or your best in show, best painted award. Uh, and then you have your best general, you know, guy, the guy who won the whole event. Right for battle score, like boom, boom. Two, both of those guys, they should have equal prize support. They should be equally lauded, each for their own things. And then you have subcategories. You know, best, best uh, Xenos player, best painted Xenos player, best painted Xenos army. You know, best, um, best Imperium, best painted Imperium, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, best Space Marine. Uh, and then when you get down to like Wooden Spoon, um, you have Wooden Spoon, and you might have like instead of Wooden Spoon, you might have like best painted model. Right. Um, so, so not, you know, not a, obviously you don't want to give someone a really poorly painted model an award. Um, and I, I, more prize support given to more people for different reasons is by far the best way to grow your event. Um, which is why I'm even suggesting this at all. Why I'm even going on to this pretty much a long tangent or long rant, so to speak. And that's, that's the way you grow your event. And a good example of, um, how this can be well implemented was this year at the Bay Area Open. Uh, there, there's only you know best painted and second best painted, and best over best Renaissance man and second best Renaissance man. And that's it. Just four people out of a hundred over a hundred beautifully painted armies. There were, there were a lot of really gorgeous armies at the Bay Area Open. Only four people got recognized. Um, so the Game Castle went ahead and recognized three more people, uh, and, and that wasn't that was the best themes. Right, so essentially Seth, who is a really good painter himself, uh, went around and picked the three best themes for armies. So one was a Grey Knight army that you know it was converted. Every Grey Knight was killing demons. It was it was a really cool demon world. The Grey Knights were all just railing into these demons. It wasn't the best painted. It wasn't the best converted, but it was definitely a cool army, and it should have worn. It deserved some sort of recognition. 
um, which is why I'm also giving it recognition to it now. Um, but it deserved something, right? And unfortunately, the the way the way um, I see a lot of people push painting score, where the the way they kind of just add it on, um, and they make it, they're like, oh yeah, painting is very important. It should be a part of the game, but people don't really push for awards or or for any cool things for for painting awards like that. Um, anyways, so so yeah, so one of them was a another army was a Hello Kitty themed army, and. It just it really opened my eyes to the possibility of some of truly incorporating painting and you know in the hobby into your tournament scene while also keeping it separate, not diluting either, right? And then you have you have enough awards for both players, and that way you also don't have to have this big grand convention where you have these paint showcases and then you have this big tournament. You can have one single tournament and then have people competing for either painting or tournament or the tournament itself. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe you can even have people just walk into the event and pay to enter your tournament and then not actually play, but they still want to enter their armies to win cool things, right? That might be something people do. I don't know. I, I might just also be, you know, talking and bringing all this up out of nowhere. Um, anyways, tell me what you guys think. Uh, do you guys Do you guys like the way the paint scores are handled now? So the typical standard tournament format um, for award prizes is you get your best overall, uh, and then depending on your tournament philosophy, that can either be the grand prize or not. Uh, then there's best general, and then there's best painted, and then there's best faction awards. Um, typically, you know, opponent or tournaments will do best of faction, and then that'll either be best battle score or best overall for that faction. Uh, so best Xenos player, or actually best Tyranid player, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, let me know what you guys think. Um, I, I, this is a part of the tournament scene and part of the competitive 40k that I don't talk about very much. It's a little bit more of the hobbying aspect, uh, but it's something that I've been wanting to talk about, and I th felt like it was relevant enough to my podcast and to tournament play and event play that I wanted to talk about it, uh, and that I felt a little justified in talking about it. That, and I've been thinking about it for a while. Anyways, um, this is gonna we're gonna hit another commercial break here, guys. So. We'll see you guys right after this one with Mini Wargaming Matt, and see you all later. Hey guys, welcome to PD Pop Second Handies, the commercial segment about market trends and trade tips that I pick up from running Frontline Gaming's secondhand shop. Today I just want to let you guys know that right now is still the time to get into Age of Sigmar. With the release of the General's Handbook 2 and the release of A Edition, came a lot of people who were trying to get rid of their old fantasy armies. You can come across some real gems for dirt cheap including inside our own eBay store, to help supplement your Age of Sigmar army. Don't forget to head on over to FrontlineGaming.org, where there is a link to the secondhand shop where we commonly list secondhand 40k items at over 50% off MSRP. Thanks guys, and have a good one. Alright guys, and we're back. I brought a guest with me. Uh, he, I, I'm fanboying out right now, I'm trying to... I'm trying to contain myself and feel calm and composed uh, because the guy I brought on this episode um, was primarily one of the main reasons why I am now recording this podcast and talking to all of you um, and kind of the reason why I, I'm, I'm here, period, and why I'm in this amazing community, and that's Midi Wargaming Matt. Uh, Matt, say hi to everyone. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show, Pablo. Uh, no problem. Uh, so if, for those of you who may not know, uh, Mini Wargaming is a community, uh, a community of people who record 
40k videos as well as other things age of sigmar um they used to do, i don't know if you guys still do warm hordes uh x-wing etc just uh, a gaming video community located in canada um they do a lot of they put out a lot of great content and uh, they do a great job ushering newer players and keeping older players into the hobby um so if you haven't checked them out check them out uh the matt specifically got me into 40k uh, with the his Apocalypticon, I think that's what it's called, the Apocalypticon yeah. YouTube video back like four years ago, uh, which is still a great video. It, it's it, it's just if you want to see a bunch of really awesome models, you're like, whoa, what's this? Or you want to show your friend, like, this is what 40K is. It's a great video for that. Um, but the reason why I have Matt on this episode is because Matt has has been in more battle reports than I think, I think um, most of the people I know combined. Right. Um, did you have a number, Matt? Oh, I don't know. It's several Thousand. hundred. Several it's, hundred. I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say it's over a thousand, but we've been like we're hitting our tenth year anniversary. Wow. Uh, and this, like, probably around the time that this airs, we'll have hit ten years. But we didn't start doing battle reports right away, so I would, um, I would, I have to guess just for the beat map bat reps that I've done. A few hundred of those and then i've been in other videos as well so yeah i, I don't even know it's hundreds definitely several hundred at least yeah and for every single one of them they're not all the same list right it's not it's not like you're running space marine mini wargaming chapter every single video you guys have put out videos for every faction um some more than others obviously uh but the point is is that you have to craft a list not only that you want to play, a list that you understand and that you enjoy playing, um, but a list that your viewers enjoy watching and enjoy playing. Um, and this list has to be competitive enough to uh, do well in a game, any game, Eternal War or Maelstrom, um, as well as your opponent's list, which has to mirror its competitiveness and its fun level, quote-unquote. Um, so it's as someone who's been on Battle Reports and someone who's crafted lists uh, both to get new players into the game um, and to just run unique, fun things, it's really challenging sometimes to uh, run a list that, that's fun uh, and, and ha with competitive you know, fairness in mind um, and also one that you enjoy playing. Uh, so I brought Matt on here today uh, to kind of pick his mind um, for some of that experience in lift bu list building that he's accumulated over the years, over his almost 10 years of, of broadcasting. So that's what today's main topic is going to be. How do you build a competitive slash fun list um, for both you and your opponent so that you can have a competitive fun game and hopefully use that to usher in new players and to uh, stay in the hobby and enjoy the hobby, you know, for years and years. So it is a it is a challenge. I will say that right away. Yeah. That all the, everything we're going to talk about today, nothing's perfect because in the, in the end, it's a dice game, and so you could craft everything perfectly, and the dice can make games one sided and less fun than they can be, or less entertaining to watch. Uh, if you actually think about sports that you watch too, not every game that you watch is is uh, going to be as interesting as others and those are pretty balanced like same number of players on each side similar skill levels arguably and yet you can still watch sports games where one side just stomps the other you watch other ones where it's an awesome comeback and you watch other ones that are you know stay no score the entire game until the very end so the, the excitement level can really vary no matter how much 
planning you put into it. So you got to kind of let go of the fact that you're going to be able to do this perfectly in the first place as we talk about all the things that we'll talk about in this call. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and ha having said all that, it, it's you could craft everything perfectly. Um, and then, you know, because it's a dice game, like you mentioned, everything can just go wrong, right? So I think that might also be something we, we touch on briefly is like, what what do you do to make the game fun for both you and your opponent when things are just going bad? I think that's something we could just add into the, into the topic as well, because I think that might be interesting to talk about. But before we do that, I have some questions for Matt. Um, you see, I've been waiting four years to finally talk to him. Um, I've, I've been working hard, building a listener base, base, mostly just working up the courage, honestly. Matt's a pretty approachable guy. Um, I have some questions for him, um, and I'm sure you guys do too, so hopefully these are general questions that you guys all want to ask him yourself. But first question is, Matt, how did you get into 40K? Uh, interestingly enough, before we had started Mini Wargaming, uh, I've... Dave and I, the, Dave is the other founder of Mini Wargaming. Uh, we grew up together. We played role-playing games together as teenagers. We played the miniatures game Battletech. We didn't even realize we were playing a miniature war game. We thought we were just playing like a board game or something. We, we didn't even know there was this whole world out there of that. But we, we played RPGs. We played uh, Battletech. We've got into the space version of that. We played Battlespace. Then we played the role-playing version of that, which was MechWarrior. So we were big Battletech fans. And um, I grew up as a Lord of the Rings fan. I had read the books when I was pretty young, and I read them a few times over. And so when uh, years later, after all of that, when I was in my young 20s, I'd say it doesn't really matter, early 20s, my wife and I were killing some time. And we were just walking around a mall in Burlington in Ontario, and I saw a store called Games Workshop. I had no idea what that was. And I thought it would just be your typical gaming store that has board games and role-playing games. And so I wanted to go in there. As soon as I walked in, I looked around and I saw that it was Warhammer. And I had this stigma in my mind that Warhammer was not something I'd be interested in because the only exposure I had to it was when I was in another gaming store as a teenager. And there was a single box of Warhammer Fantasy, like the, the big starter box. And it has like 100 miniatures in it at that time. And somebody else, I, when I pulled it off the shelf and looked at it, somebody said to me, oh, yeah, that game's really complicated. It takes you all day just to put your miniatures in place, and then it takes you another day just to play a game. <laughs> that's, what I was, that's what I was told. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound like fun at all. And so I was about to walk out of the store when this little guy, one of the employees, his name is Spencer, probably, I don't know, two foot three. He's pretty short. But uh, he comes up to me. He's, all, he's very enthusiastic and very energetic and very likable. And so... He strikes up a conversation with us, and I told him I'm not really interested in Warhammer. And then he asked me and my wife are we, if we were Lord of the Rings fans, and the answer was an enthusiastic yes. Both of us had watched all the movies several times. We watched them every few months all the way through. So he took us to the back of the store where there was that one area that had the Lord of the Rings miniatures. He showed me his collection. He did a little demo game, and he basically sold me on it, and I loved it. And so I walked out of there with a uh, hundred and something dollars worth of product, which by today's figures would be like three hundred dollars worth of product. And uh, I got into that and I got Dave into it. And then Dave approached me and he wanted to start a business together. He was doing landscaping at the time. I was doing marketing, uh, internet marketing at the time. So he, he loved the idea of being an actor and uh, video marketing was a brand new thing. And so that's kind of where Mini Wargaming started is that we decided to work together on that. 
And now this answers the question kind of in a long way of how I got in 40K. Basically, once we started making videos, we quickly realized that Lord of the Rings was not a very popular game. <laughs> and so we knew that if we were to be a successful business, that we had to kind of bite the bullet and play the game that everybody else plays, which is 40K. And so we decided to get into that. Dave was instantly drawn to chaos because it just fits his personality. I was drawn for Tyranids because I was a huge StarCraft fan and I love the Zerg race and they were as close as I could get to that even though they kind of look dumb holding their guns. Never a big fan of the, the way the models look. I'm used to it now and I, now I like them, but at the time I thought they looked really dumb. But they they at least were like kind of like the Zerg. And so that's how we both started Him Chaos, Me Tyranids, and we just started playing it because we had to. But then of course, and I didn't like the lore, I didn't like the gothic, you know, dark ages kind of feel the whole thing this grim dark thing and so i really was forcing myself to play it i'd much rather be playing lord of the rings and uh but then over the years of course as i got more and more into it i got used to the setting and then i started to like the setting and now i love the setting i've read a lot of the books from the black library and i've just just fallen in love with the game not uh, you know i still love to see certain changes to it but at the same time it's a very rich universe that i've come to appreciate and and really enjoy so now it is it's the game i always come back to i love playing other games but it's a it's a it's a game that you can always come back to and play more of yeah w w when you first started your story i was thinking like didn't their narrative campaigns are like amazing like how 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 do you not anyways um that aside uh th that's a great story um the 40k does kind of grow on you um i was kind of in the opposite boat in that i loved the lore uh, a lot I was a big space marine, uh, a big uh, Terran fan in StarCraft, um, so the space marines kind of drew to me. Um, but uh, the the game so much didn't I didn't really like the game so much. It's like, well, this is this is boring, um, complicated, blah blah blah. But uh, it does grow on you. Um, and also, before I get to the next question, shout out to Spencer for getting Matt into Lord of the Rings and GW games. Spencer, you're the man. If you're out there somewhere and you happen to listen to this podcast. You're the man. <laughs> I guess he's I, I guess he's the granddaddy of many wargaming. <laughs> um <laughs> so next question, uh you you obviously said your favorite army was Tyranids, right? Um how how did Tyranids uh in eighth edition how how do you like them now? Like do do you like them even more? Um are you switching to like another faction that you like better, or Tyranids still your one true love? Well, as anybody who's regularly playing the game knows, Tyranids, as well as armies like the Orcs, got a serious buff in the 8th edition. Uh, and I was very pleased to see that, because they suffered horribly throughout 7th. I, I played them, but basically, if you watched a battle report and I was playing Tyranids, and we'll kind of get to this later about how I choose which faction and which armies, but if you saw me playing Tyranids, you knew that I, you could know basically that I thought my opponent wasn't bringing something that's very powerful. Uh, so they, they, I look at their army and think, oh, okay, now I can bring my Tyranids because that's not that great a list. And so I, I would only play them if my opponent wasn't bringing even a mediocre list because anything else, it wouldn't be a fun game to watch because either I would have to do the min-maxing that you would see at the tournaments with fly rent spam, lots of flying hive tyrants everywhere, which I didn't want. I didn't even own three flying hive tyrants until like a few months ago. I just didn't want to have that many. I just... It, it, it broke the lore. You just wouldn't normally see that many flying hive tyrants all, all playing together with this tiny little army. And so I just didn't like that. And uh, and so since I wasn't willing to play that and fill up my troop choices with mucolid spores, because some reason for some reason they're troop choices, not fast attack choices, uh, which I still think is a mistake, especially now that they are now fast attack choices. 
but just I hated that concept. I just didn't want to do that. And so I just wouldn't play them because it wouldn't be a fun matchup. So I got into other armies like Space Marines and Tau and Necrons and played those instead. But I still, the the lore of the Tyranids is just fantastic. Uh, it's funny enough that the Zerg got me into the Tyranids, but I now that StarCraft II has come out, I really don't like what they did with the Zerg lore. They made it too human. They added people into it, and it's just... It's no longer as scary as it was. So I really hope they don't do something like that to the Tyranids because their lore is just fantastic. They're just frighteningly terrifying. And and I love that about it. So, so yeah, I, I'm actually forgetting what the original question was now. Oh, it was <laughs> they're in 8th edition. Yeah. <laughs> I, went off, I went off topic there for a second, sorry. So I think they're great in 8th edition. I've played quite a few games with them. And the thing I love the most is that there's pretty much nothing in the Tyranid Index that I would look at and say, I'll never take that. And that's what I love, is that I see 10 different ways to play them totally differently from the other 10 ways that I would play them. And so I'm, I am absolutely loving the Tyranids in 8th edition, much more so than pretty much any other edition except maybe how I like them in 4th and 5th. Yeah, I, and that's actually something that holds true throughout most of 8th edition units. Um, now, if some people might disagree with me on this, um, which is completely understandable. I, I see your points. Um, but in general, as I've read through all the factions, um, there's really not a lot of units, period, that I'm just like, well, I'm probably never going to take those. Those are, those, are pretty, those are pretty bad. Like, you know, the Witches, Dark Elder Witches, last edition, were, were kind of like a unit like you never touched. Um, uh, a lot of people like to point to like Mandrakes and Vespids, but I think last edition, I think there were places for them. Um, but Mandrakes in particular, uh, you never really saw. Um, and it's just, e even if units aren't being used even uh, at your local store, um, like at the smaller level, um, or at the more casual level, people who just, you know, play and have fun maybe once a month, um, if you, you see those units not being picked then, um, then you know those units are, are truly underpowered. Um, but now I see people like like I run the secondhand shop through Frontline Gaming, um, and units that were previously sit in eBay for months and months and months are are finally selling, right? So it, it's it's kind of a it, it's kind of a cool unique phenomenon. Um, I really I do like how they they tone things back in Eighth Edition, um, made them less complicated to make all of the units uh, better. They kind of expanded um, uh, horizontally instead of vertically. Uh, so that's that's really cool. Um, how does how does uh so this is going to be a two part question. Um, what is your favorite rule or concept or idea about Eighth Edition um, that you really really uh, enjoy compared to past editions? Um, and then how does that and Eighth Edition in general affect what you do at Mini Wargaming? I'd say that there's two things for the rules. Uh, one of them, which I was, if you if you followed our videos on a regular basis, you knew I always belly ached about the difference between vehicles and monstrous creatures. Mm -hmm and how I hated that. It didn't make sense either way. The fact that monstrous creatures were fully effective until they were dead, or the fact that um, you couldn't hurt a vehicle without the right strength weapon. Like, I get that some people are like, well, you shouldn't be able to hurt a land raider with Alaska. And like, I get that argument, although I disagree with it. But it just was something about the fact that until you were at least strength five or six, you weren't touching most vehicles until you were in combat with them. And that just never sat right with me because it created in a, in a game where you don't like 40k is probably one of the larger number like when it comes to scale of miniature games up there, it's probably one that uses the most miniatures. Um, not 
it, there's other ones out there that use a lot too, but I still think on a regular basis that we have a lot of skirmish games. So each guy has to be important, but in 40k, there's larger armies. And so the fact that you'd have to think about these things, well, I have to dedicate X percent of my army to anti-tank, X percent of my army to anti-flyer, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then you're supposed to bring an all-comers list, which I always, we, we would sometimes get complaints. Oh, you should only be bringing all-comers lists. And I'm like, what the heck does that even mean? Because it's just the, the, the way that the meta works is there was too many different types of things that you had to be up against. Monstrous creatures versus vehicles, flying monstrous creatures versus flyers. It just didn't it didn't gel together. I didn't like the way they worked. And then they had the audacity to start calling Dread Knights monsters, <laughs> Riptides monsters. And I'm like, where is okay, you're blurring your own lines here. Like you're admitting that the Walker concept doesn't work for your own models. But I at the same time I understand that they can't just mid-edition change a fundamental rule thing like that. And so I was glad to see that in eighth edition they they kind of merged the two of them mostly together. That uh the only difference between a vehicle and a monster now is the keyword that essentially will affect certain abilities such as repairing or the old haywire type things. So I really like that. It's, it's made the game feel uh, just, it kind of brings everything towards the same level. Like you still won't be able to beat an all monster or all vehicle list with all last guns. You, you, just because last gun can hurt it doesn't mean it will be the effective thing. Last cannons and missile launchers, auto cannons will still be more effective at doing that. So I, I'm glad that those are in there. But last cannons are now also effective at other things now that they have the multi-damage. Whereas before, last cannons were useless against monsters and overpowered against vehicles. Now they're good against both. And they should be. Like, they're freaking last cannons. Like, they should be able to punch through a monstrous creature just as much as they do a vehicle. And the fact that you can have, like, auto cannons actually do something and heavy bolters mean something uh, really feels good when I'm playing a game. Just that when I look at the field, there's nothing that's indestructible to a certain point, of course. So that's one of the big ones. The other big one that um, I really enjoy that they changed over is the combat system. That the the seventh edition close combat was okay, but I really enjoy eighth edition close combat. It's a little convoluted sometimes. There's a lot of nuances. It's which is it's a really good thing I think because a beginner can be taught it rather basically. And but an expert player, like once somebody really dives into what the what it all means, those little those little pile-ins and those little consolidations and how you charge can really really impact the outcome of the game. But a beginner doesn't have to know about all those nuances to enjoy the game. Uh, so it really it kind of scales up that your skill actually comes into it a lot more. There's still randomness, lots and lots and lots of randomness, but I still enjoy that combat means much more than just simply. Whoever has a high initiative goes goes first and must pile in exactly like this. You don't have really any control or very little control over it. And how you charge, you have very little control over. And now there's a lot more control. And then mechanisms like falling back and all of that just to kind of mitigate the just the whole game. I, I really do enjoy that. So those two things I say would my, be my favorite changes, although there's many other changes that I really, really enjoy going from 7th to 8th. Uh, yeah, yeah. One brief note on the the falling the combat. Um, I I like that they're giving the player more options. Specifically, using combat as a specific specific example. Um, when you give uh, rules with with gray areas like must consolidate so that the model it, uh is closer to the nearest enemy model. Um, not like directly at it. Like you can't you don't have to move directly at it, but you can move in like little 
incrementally smaller circles to get where you need to. Um, you cannot move at all. Or when you charge, you can go towards enemy mod, like a different enemy model, so that they're the closest. It's you're you're right. There's a lot of little nuances that do make it a lot more fun. Um, and in in videos, it shows too, right? Because you can actually get in there and 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 kind of like show the model's path and explain what you're doing. Um, it makes it a lot more tactically fun. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot more dynamics to it. All right. Final and question. For the second, oh, so ahead, for the sorry. second part of your question, the, the second part of your question was, well, how does that affect our battle reports and all of that? And the answer is, it, 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 in some ways, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not actually quite sure exactly how it affects us. We're just going to be playing the game, however it plays, right? But uh, one thing I've noticed is that there, that close combat feels a lot more viable. And I know people disagree with that. Like even one of my own employees, Steve, he highly disagrees with that. He just wants to bring last cannons and flamers for days. <laughs> and maybe he's right. Maybe at a competitive level, at a tournament level. Close combat won't be as big a thing. Maybe it's worse. He actually thinks close combat's worse than it was in seventh. That it's harder to pull off because of the falling back mechanism. But I've noticed that most things have gotten a buff in how fast they move. Tyrion is especially. Everything's just moving faster, and everybody's got ways to deep strike in and pop up behind enemy lines with with pinpoint accuracy, which I love because I hated reserves before. Absolutely hated them. And and so I just I find that every game, it's just. I, okay, let's put it this way. In 7th edition, when the Jesus of their cult came out, I would always tell my opponent, we'll probably be done by turn 3. Because my guys are going to pop out, and they're either going to murder you, or they're going to die. But there's not going to be... Or somewhere in between. But there's not going to be nothing happening. Like, I'm going to be in your face turn 1, and and we're going to just duke this out right from turn 1. There's not going to be in this turn 1 kind of movement, pop off some shots from a distance, turn 2, start to get closer, turn 3, the combat starts. Well, it feels like 8th edition is always like that. Everybody has the ability to do stuff like that to certain degrees. Everybody moves faster. Everybody has access to different types of deep striking and uh, the reinforcements and all of that that can pop up nine inches away. And and I love that. I just It just makes the whole board feel more dynamic. The fight's happening everywhere, not just in a gun line. And and I and that, that, I think, makes for better, better battle reports because they're more action-packed. So that that's a more subjective view, obviously, because everybody's going to have their own taste to what they like. But for me, I find the game to be way more fun, just because of how much more action there is and how much more positioning there is on the table. Right. Um, that's actually a really good point that I never thought about. Um, it also explains why a lot of games end faster. Um, it, not necessarily the the quality of the games do you know don't go down. It's just um, when it's more action packed, uh, you you know your game's going to end fast. Like, if everything's in your face, turn one, or if there's, if everything has the ability to get where it needs to be, turn one and turn two, uh, you you have, just at that point, you have uh, positioning and dice rolling and tactics instead of, you know, as you said, moving to where you need to go in, in, like, in the previous edition or just waiting for your reserve roll to come in. Like, okay, Fire Raptor, it's turn four now. Let, go get him, boy. Like, now yeah. you have to go into position. Um, now it's just like that fire after it starts on the board and then it gets where it needs to go and starts doing work. Um, but your opponent's, you know, fire raptor or equivalent is also starts on the board or deep strikes perfectly, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and action packed is probably the best way to describe it. Um, so yeah, it's, that's, that's cool. I never thought about that. Sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to, I completely forgot to ask you a second question. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, I, I took a long time to finish the first one. So, all right. And then finally, this is a personal question. Um, as I said, uh, your Apocalypticon video was kind of like my first 
battle report online battle report Ooh. and then my very first 40k game that i ever saw uh back when i was in high school um was uh, an apocalypse game um so i've always kind of like really liked apoc games i don't play in them as much as i used to um but because i have you on my podcast now and i have you right where i want you is apocalypticon ever coming back probably okay and I can say that because um, we're working on getting into a new building, actually. We'll probably be in a new building in the next year, which is much larger than the one we have right now. It'll have room for more studios. It'll if, if, if everything goes perfectly as planned, the new building will have room for six studios instead of four. Wow. It's going to have a storefront. We're not going to run the storefront. We're, we're just... Uh, but there, it is going to be a miniature war game store. Uh, there's a store in Niagara Falls, Max Aggression, and they're going to open up another branch right in our building, which is really nice, so that we don't have to worry about running it, because we're just not in the position to do that right now. And it also has an events area that can fit upwards of 50 to 60 gamers wow. if you're really pack if you're packing them in 30 to 40 if you want to be a little more comfortable. And it also actually has uh, apartments above it, so we're going to actually have places that we can rent two guests who are going to be here so they have a place to stay and yeah it's got it's got it's gonna be awesome it's gonna be what we've always dreamed of making and uh that will hopefully have moved into that by next summer oh my god and so yeah right and so to answer your question the reason i say probably is because uh one of the reasons that we wanted to do this extra space having the events area having the place for people to stay is because we want to run more events where people actually come down uh, there will be a ticket price, obviously, there, but that'll that can include lodging and everything else like that for them to come in and and come into these events. So, for example, and this is all speculation of what we're going to do because we're just starting the process right now. Uh, for example, when we wanted to do a Gorkamorka campaign before, we would just do it amongst our staff members and we'd film a bunch of it and we'd have fun. But now it could be like, yeah, we want to play Gorkamorka, so we're going to book off these two weeks, four or five months from now. We'll post that on our events calendar and people can actually pay and come down and stay in our stay in our bunker and participate and part of what they'll play will just be in the events area but then the other part they'll actually be in our studios filming with us and so we can have like a big group playing this big campaign of Gorkamorka and then the viewers get to watch whatever we film in the studio and so that allows us to have more people in to experience uh, the mini wargaming experience and so Apocalypticon obviously would fit the bill for that as well being able to fit, I could probably, we could probably cram 40, 50 people in there for an apocalypse game. And so that's roughly the size that we did before. Uh, so it won't be as, we won't be able to grow it bigger than that, but that's, that'll be half a million points right there. So that, that'll be a lot of fun. So the potential is there. I can't make any promises, but uh, it is definitely on the docket to return. That's exciting. Um, wow. So I guess, I, I guess that, that begs the question. Um, is, is so is Quirk going to be the receptionist and is Steve going to do room service or because <laughs> I, I think Steve would look pretty good in some of those those room service outfits. Yeah, um, yeah. Or, or he could be a doorman or an elevator belt boy. He'll <laughs> uh, be the bouncer. Yeah, <laughs> the bouncer. Um, no, that's that's <laughs> exciting. Uh, um, I guess on to the main topic. Uh, so uh, with the main topic being uh, building a competitive and fun list. Um, First, we have to define what a competitive fun list is, right? Um, so it it is is not a a uh, fluff list or a, you know like a tenth scout company 
you know, fluffy narrative list. Um, that is not it because those lists are inherently not meant to focus on being competitive or balanced. They're uh, focusing on a narrative, uh, so they don't have to. They don't have to adhere to the normal rules of list building, um, so to speak. They're they're more fluid, and and they're the thing you're trying to get out of building those kind of lists is different than just having a competitive fun game. Now they can have competitive fun games with those lists. Um, I was in a narrative campaign a year ago now, the fall of Van R5, um, and I ran a first company ultramarine drop pod list. Uh, it was just Sternguard. I didn't really care. I just WYSIWYGed whatever weapons they had on. I ran those models, um, but it was really fun and competitive, and all my games were really close. I had a good time. Um, but that's not always necessarily the case, and that's not the point of narrative lists. Uh, and then on the flip side, uh, you have really like tournament competitive lists, like like kind of like the boogeyman lists that uh, you hear in the dark depths of the internet. You know, like the Razorwing flock spam. Uh, you, you know, like conscript spam, brimstone horror spam, storm ravens, tau commanders. Um, those lists are are meant for a different purpose. They are meant to win. Um, and they, you know, they are meant to to uh, shore up any weaknesses the faction has, uh, to beat a variety of other powerful lists, um, and they aren't necessarily geared to ha with fun in mind. Uh, now, those lists can still also be fun and competitive, um, and both players can have a great time playing, um, but that's not what they are meant for. Uh, so we're looking at the middle range of lists, the lists that take elements maybe from both sides, maybe they do something different, something different with a theme. Um, the, the balance lists that are designed uh, with missions in mind, they're designed with your opponent's fun in mind, um, and they're designed to have both players have a good time. So, anything else you want to add to that, Matt? No, that that sums it up pretty nicely. Okay, um, and then uh, you you might be asking yourself, like, why, why are they so important? Um, a lot of players that listen to my podcast are more competitively driven and competitively focused. I'd say my viewer base is 50-50, and that half of you uh, go to tournaments and, and you, you are more competitive-minded. And then other ha another half of you are people who just they just want to get better at the game. Um, and I'm talking to the people who, who want to get better at the game tactically, uh, who want to focus on their list and have a good time. And the reason why, why you both you guys are very important, and the reason why these competitive fun lists are important um, is because they promote the hobby positively, uh, right? Um, so, it, perfect example. 7th edition. Uh, there are people who play Tyranids and Orcs um, and maybe Guard who flat out quit the game, right? Like, so when I ran the second-hand shop back in 7th edition, uh, I would say probably in, like, the dark ages of 7th edition, when, like, Magnus came out and there's a lot of power creep, uh, and people were generally not having fun with the game, with Death Stars being prominent, even in the casual level. Um, a lot of people were, you know, they were selling, like, their, their guard army, right? Like, I wasn't getting Riptides. I wasn't getting secondhand shop Riptides. I wasn't getting, like, secondhand Chapter Masters on bikes or, or like, Tigurius, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was getting, like, whole Orc armies, whole guard armies, whole Salamander armies, right? Um, and it, it was very depressing to see, uh, you know, because these are people selling... 10, 20,000 points worth of an army that was, that was really gorgeously painted. And uh, it sure, like, it, it, it was a secondhand shop. You know, I resold it on eBay, um, and, and it promoted, you know, that part of the business. But, uh, like, I didn't, like, I felt, I felt bad, right? So um, looking at 8th edition now, um, it's very important to focus on these, these lists to keep people happy and keep people into their games. Um, and it, it, it keeps people excited, right? And keeping people excited means they're not going to sell their armies. Um, and, and they're not going to be, you know, 
they're not going to be out of the game. And then they're also not going to tell other people, oh, 40k is not fun, right? Like, my orc sucked. Like, your army that you picked, that'll probably be bad. So just, like, don't play this game. Play X-Wing instead, right? We, we don't want that. Um, so competitive fun lists and teaching people how to build them, uh, it makes people excited in the game. Um, and as do, like, battle reports, like mini wargaming battle reports and, and podcasts and tournaments. All, all, everything in the community, um, if it's focused positively, um, and geared towards you guys, the listeners, it promotes the game, and then that in turn grows Games Workshop, who in turn maybe hire more staff, uh, put out more models, and just it's just better, right? So that's like kind of like the like my soapbox grand scheme to make everything amazing and to bring everyone in GW together or everyone in, who plays 40k together, uh, because I love this game. So, yeah, for sure. And if I can add one more thing, sure. I personally believe that the majority of games, like if we could look at all the games of 40K being played in everybody's basement and all the stores and all the events, the majority of them are not tournament games. Absolutely. That people might go online and learn stuff from tournaments, but for the most part, be just because of several factors, one being that people don't, not everybody plays the game often. Some people play the game very little. Actually, Games Workshop, I remember in one of their financial reports said that they, they believed to some effect that more people didn't play the game than did. Most people just bought the models because they love them. I disagree with that. That that was several years ago, thankfully. And so I, I think they're learning from those earlier mistakes of taking that mindset. But uh, I, I do agree with the idea that more people are playing casually by far than are playing in a tournament setting. And so we have to remember that too, is that um, in order to be a tournament player, in order to be a real truly competitive player, you have to play a lot. You have to spend a lot of money because you need the exact models. Most tournaments won't let you proxy entire armies. So if you want to bring, if the current meta says five flying high hive tyrants go with every army, then you need to have five flying hive tyrants. And that's not cheap. If the current meta says you need to have an inquisitor with three servo skulls in every army, no matter what you're playing, then everybody buys up the inquisitors if they want to remain competitive. That's not too bad for expense. But it just goes on and on. That all of a sudden the Tau get an update, and it shifts the meta. The Games Workshop is, I think, the one thing they've done well. They, rules and balance—they've not always been that great at, and still are questionably not that great at. But uh, what they are good at, if, if whether they're doing this on purpose or not, I hope they are because it's, it's a good business move. Is shifting the meta, is changing what's good because that sells models, obviously. Is, uh, if all if Carnifex has sucked before, well, they don't sell very many Carnifexes. And then Carnifexes become good, then they sell a lot of them. But then they stop selling Trigons because they're not as good. So then you then you debuff or you nerf the Carnifex and you, you buff the Trigon and you sell those. So tournament players have to spend a lot of money if they want to keep up. And they have to play a lot of games. They have to do a lot of research. And the more of those things that you add on to that requirement list, the less and less people you're going to be getting to do that, just simply because not everybody has the time, the money, or even the desire to do that kind of thing. So if you are in the tournament scene constantly, you can kind of get this mindset that that is what everybody does, but it's actually not. Yes. And so, so you have to kind of realize that most people are playing just for fun. And once again, like you said, not that tournaments aren't fun, because I, I enjoy, I, I get the occasional player who comes in saying, hey, I want to bring this super powerful Eldar list. And actually one person is that they brought in a really, really powerful Space Marine list 
uh, it was back in seventh when the new formations that allowed them to, I can't remember the formation, what it was, or the detachment, but they could drop in the assault Marines and the Devastators and they worked together really well. Guy Hammer Annihilation. Yes, 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 that one, which everybody just cried about. And he's like, I want you to try to beat this. And I was like, groan, I don't want to play against that. And I'm like, all right, so you know what? Because I don't want to play against it, I'm going to use Tyranids. And I'm going to build as dirty a Tyranid list as I can, at least what I think, knowing exactly what you're bringing. So he he basically let me see exactly what he was bringing. And my challenge became build a tiered list designed purposely to counter his exact list. And the game, you know, he still beat the pants off of me, but it was it was a fun game anyways, because all of a sudden my mindset was like, okay, I, I'm up against Goliath here, and I, I'm bringing just this, this horrible army against it, but I'm going to try to beat him anyways. And so I still enjoy that kind of thing. Or even like somebody saying, I'm gonna t- we're going to take the gloves off. I'll bring a, a cheese Eldar list. I'm like, okay, I'll bring a cheese towel list. I, I enjoy them. It's fun. But it's fun because both of them are kind of the same level, right? which is something that we'll talk a lot about, is that uh, designing lists to be the same power level. And I don't mean power level as in power rating. I mean, like, competitive level. And so, so yeah, but just realize that most people aren't tournament players. And so there definitely is a niche out there for people wanting to all this stuff. But you can kind of, it's, as a tournament player, it's easy to lose focus on the fact that most people aren't that. So when you go into your local gaming store just to do a, a quick game with somebody, it's going to be a different meta altogether because they just they just can't keep up with that. Yes, and, and that's also, that, I'm glad you brought that up. That's uh, a skill that tournament players need to uh, grow into is um, building a competitive fun list um, for, for when they go into those local gaming stores. So they don't like, oh, well, I'm going to bring five Florence, um, and I'm going to play all these players who bring like their Black Templar assault squads and their land raiders. Yeah. Um, right? So it's it, that's it's a skill that, that both players need to have. And, and then um, we alluded to this earlier in that casual players who play, you know, they maybe play like once a month. I, I think it's like maybe once every three weeks, once a month. That's what it feels like. Um, and when you have people who, there are such a majority of the game that plays the game so little, compared to other games where they only play once a month you only have so many opportunities to make sure they have a fun experience before you know they they quit or they or they tell the people not to play 40k um kind of like uh your your very first experience with warhammer where you know the person said like oh well you you know th- this is an unfun game like it's going to take an, a day to build the list and another day to play right like you, if that if you had if you had like believed him and never came into 40k or never gotten into a GW games, mini wargaming wouldn't be around, right? So we all have to be ambassadors to the game, and we all have to. If you truly love the game, we all have to do our best to be positive about the game to bring new people in. Because if a guy plays a game once a month in seventh edition, right? So if he only plays like 10 games in seventh edition, and half of them he's playing like a cheesy Death Star list, and he doesn't have any fun, he's gonna he's gonna leave the game because you know to him. It had been a year since the ga- he's been playing the game, and he hasn't had any fun. Spent a lot of money. He's gonna sell it, sell that army, and get some of that money back and join a new game and invest his time somewhere else. Um, so we have to make sure that that casual majority is is having fun, right? Um, so because they are they are gonna be the ones who go out there and be at the local game store randomly, uh, and someone's gonna look at a Space Marine tactical squad, and they're gonna be like, well, that Space Marine tactical squad is is just gonna be like it sucks. So you know what, you shouldn't even buy it, you know, because it's not going to be good, right? You don't mm-hmm. want people to say that. So that that's also the point of this episode, too, is to help you guys um, build fun lists and be ambassadors to the hobby, um, which is very important, um, and just why I, I wanted Matt on this episode to talk about this, because Matt is such a large part of the global community. All right, so 
now, now that that's all over, whew, okay. Um, <laughs> how do you go about building lists for battle reports, Matt, um, for competitive fun lists? Like, just get, get into, like, the meat and potatoes. It's it, it, what I have to do. It's it's interesting because it's basically everything we said to this point basically says that it's hard to do. It's it's because dice can change the balance of anything. You can do a bad job of it, but dice can make it good. And you can do a good job of it, dice can make it bad. But what I basically do, and it has changed in eighth edition because I have had to worry less. Like in seventh edition, it was basically we'd say, all right, are you bringing super heavies? Yes or no? Are you bringing flyers? Although that became less and less of an issue, but still, you'd say. Are you bringing flyers? Okay, because if you're not, I'm not going to. And it became a lot of that kind of thing, where I I I didn't want my, to see my opponent's list, but I wanted to not. Once I see it and I've already put my list down, be like, oh, this is gonna suck. And so I would ask a few questions first, and it usually revolved around: Are you vehicle heavy or are you not vehicle heavy? Do you have flyers? If so, do you have a lot of flyers or just like one or two? And do you have super heavies? Like, are you going to spring an Imperial Knight list on me and I've brought just a regular whatever list? It's just not going to have any fun. Um, and this is, once again, 7th edition talk because those things were just hard counters to each other where they've become a little less so. They're still hard counters, of course, but everything's become a little softer. And so that was a big part. If, so the, if I can say the first thing you have to do if you're going to face somebody else's, you have to kind of have this uh, social contract or this um, this gentleman's agreement, if you want to call it that. Uh, and that is that you both understand that you're not, uh, what type of game you're playing. And that could be any level. You can be saying, you know what, let's do a gloves off kind of thing. And then you don't even have to look at your opponent's list. You both just go to town and you have fun that way. Or you can be like, you know what, I really want to do that 10th company scout list, which actually in 8th edition might be good. Um, and, and, and then they're like, okay, well then I'll do this kind of fluffy list because that, what are they hunting? And so that drops to the narrative. And so really it's hard to talk about it just in the one venue of comp making competitive and fun lists. It really is how I make all the lists is that we, we talk together, we find, I find out what they're playing. Um, and then they, what I play is driven a lot by business, of course, like if space Marines just came out, we have to play a lot of space Marines. Uh, when 8th edition came out at first, I tried to cover a lot of different factions. And so I wanted to make sure, oh, I just played Tyranids three times, so three times, so now I need to play something else. So I, I, being in a, a job doing battle reports does dictate a little bit more of what I have to do. Also, if I tried out a list in a previous battle report, I'll probably not use that type of list again. I might use elements of it, but I want to keep things different. But it also speaks to me personally. I have... I, I get bored of the same thing, whether it's the same army or the same list. I remember playing War Machine when I played Kador, and I had a hard time winning games with it until I discovered the, uh, oh, what were they called? The, the shirtless guys with the big swords. and the, I don't know. The, they're, they're, they're Reavers or Berserkers. No, Berserker was the Jack. I don't remember. I think they had the Berserk rule, or they, just, they were just... They hit hard, and they just kept hitting hard. Whenever they killed something, they got to attack again. I don't remember what it was, but it doesn't matter. There was this one list where you used a lot of them, and I perfected it. I played a few games on battle reports until I perfected it, and then I never played it again <laughs> because it was too good. It got to the point where I'm like, okay, yeah, this works. Check it off the list. Moving on. I just don't want to play it anymore. I think I brought it out one more time because it was against an opponent who just kept beating me. So I'm like, all right, you know what? You're getting this one because... Uh, you just keep beating me, so I've got to bring something that can 
that can beat you. And so, but that's the kind of the feeling that I have is I, if I'm working on a list, when the Genius Leader Cult first came out, you, you watch the first 10 games I played with them. I was trying out different things and then I was honing a list that was really good. And once I figured out what was really good, you never saw me play it again because it was too good. Once I figured it out, especially Genius Leader Cult at the end of seventh, they got really, really good or a little random, but you know what I mean? They, they yeah. could, in a, in a battle report where the person's not bringing a super competitive list, they can be a little too good. And so I'd have to learn my armies really well to find out what's good, what's not, so that I could then scale. It's, it's not perfect, of course, but essentially if my opponent is on a certain level, I want to match that level. And this goes for whether they're an 11-year-old or whether they're a veteran player who who's, who's really, really good at the game or somewhere in between. Uh, I even do it with my 7-year-old at home. He loves playing board games, but they're dreadfully boring because it's a seven-year-old. Of course, I can, except for Battleship, I can beat him at any, at any game. <laughs> Battleship, for some reason, eludes me. No matter what pattern I do and what randomness he does, he just keeps beating me. But for, for every other game I play with him, it's really, you know, I, I could outthink my seven-year-old son, obviously, but I, I get bored just letting him win. And so what I'll do instead is I will set myself some sort of handicap, and then I'll try to win. And so the, to me, the list building, as much as it's part of the game, to me, it's more the, the art of building a list so that when you play the game, you don't have to feel bad about taking the gloves off and trying your hardest to win. Because if your list is already going to beat them, then you're just going to feel bad doing that. And so the, there's a few questions you can ask yourself as you build a list to see if you're that kind of player that needs to then change their mentality towards how they build lists. If you say something like, why would I ever bring that? This is better then there's that's that's a problem right there because it means that you're thinking a little too critically about the to making the perfect list and when you try to build fun lists that are competitive you need to be willing to try out different variations and you know part of the, the fault lies on games workshop because a lot of times codexes don't have good internal balance which i really i i, I get that it's hard to do good external balance between armies but they could they could do a lot better with internal balance when you look at two things on side by side, and they're in the same army, so they're not in a vacuum, of course, then, and you look at them and you say, but this one just does everything that that one but does it better, and it's less points. So why would I ever bring this? Like, it just, it, and even when you're trying to play a fun list, it just hurts to bring it. It's like, I just don't want to, because it's just so awful right. compared to this thing, which just does it better. So some of that, you know, Games Workshop needs to improve on. They need to to write better rules. I think they did a pretty good job with 8th edition, the indexes overall. Uh, we'll see what happens as the codexes come out, of course, because I'm sure that'll, I'm sure we'll see power creep come back in there. But uh, as long, but there's still a certain amount that you got to be willing to do. Like once I found out what was really good with Tyrannus and what wasn't, then if my opponent I was playing against wasn't that good, then I'd bring that stuff that I wouldn't normally get to bring. I'd be like, oh, sweet, he's bringing this crappy list. I get to bring Raveners. I get to bring lictors because I just want to try them out and have more fun with them. These things that I don't normally bring because they just wouldn't be fun to. So you have to look at the power level of your opponent. And that's not just in their list, but also in their abilities to play the game. Like somebody could bring a good list and if they suck at the game, then they're not gonna they're not gonna utilize everything that list can do. And you gotta try to build accordingly. Now this guy this has to go both ways. I, I have a bit of a unique perspective on it, and maybe one that gives me um like, for example, if you go to a gaming store, there's only five other people there that you get to play with on a regular basis, and all five, and and most of them are just those 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 types of players who just can't see past why you don't want to play their towel list that they keep bringing over and over again. 
and you're like, well, can't you tone it down? And they'd be like, well, why would I? This is a better list than that. And you're just like, that's exactly the problem. So I don't have any fun against you. And if that's all you have to play against, and I'm sorry, there's not much you can do about that. You just, you're just stuck there. Whereas I have a wonderful privilege of having people fly from all over the world to come and play battle reports with me. And typically when somebody takes a week of their time that they could go somewhere else on vacation and they come to mini wargaming instead and play battle reports, that typically is not a win at all cost player. They're typically not somebody who's there, who's played a bajillion games and has honed the perfect list to just come here and destroy everybody at mini wargaming. <laughs> They, they more often than not are the casual gamers who have spent a lot more time making their models look really good and that they want to show off those models on camera. Like, look at this really cool converted army that I have. It sucks, but it looks awesome. And so I want to show that off. We do, Of course, we still get people coming in who want to play the, the stronger list. They, there's a varying level of cheesiness amongst the people who come in and play against us. But I still find that the majority of them have the casual fun mindset in play and they're much more willing to they, they take losses really well and they're they're not sore winners or sore losers uh, with some exceptions of course there's always going to be exceptions and so i i get to experience that i get I, I rarely play against the same person more than once except for the other employees and so i get to see a large variety of people coming in and the different kinds of lists so that that gives me a unique position to have to constantly reevaluate what will be a good list against those. So I would say look at actually trying to play everything that's in your codex. Um, and that, that'll kind of give you that. It also stops you from getting too good at specific tactics, which is a bad thing. If you're trying to go on a tournament scene, like if you're, if you're preparing for a tournament, disregard everything we're saying, that's not what we're talking about. Right. When you're preparing to, and you play, I'm, I'm assuming that people who prepare for a tournament play over and over and over again, the same list and keep honing it. And they're both their tactics and exactly what they're bringing, and they get their opponents to try to challenge or bring the stuff that they think they're going to see at the tournament scene, so they can try it against it. And they're like, oh, everybody always brings Imperial Knights. Okay, well then you bring Imperial Knights, and I'll see what I can bring to beat it. Well, if that's they want to, uh, if they want to win the tournament, they do that. Exactly, <laughs> right. exactly. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about throwdown games where you're just having fun. So that's, I think that's just a big thing: is try to meet them at the same level. So that you can then have, because I think the definition of having fun is obviously subjective, but to me, a fun game is one where neither side destroys the other side. Yes. I'll admit that if I'm the one doing the destroying, it's a little less unfun <laughs> than if my opponent's the one doing the destroying, but I still don't get a lot of satisfaction from it. Uh, the, the games that I get the most satisfaction from are, they do one of two things, either the first thing they do is that by end of turn two, both sides have destroyed 80% of the other person's army. I love that. Those games are awesome, where we're just removing models. And I think that's why people like Apocalypse, because you just spend... If, if you don't like removing 50 of your own models at a time, don't play Apocalypse. Well, to me, that feeling of just like this huge warfare, I, that that I love that. And then the other thing that makes a really, really good game is that it comes down to what happens does it go to turn six if it doesn't go to turn six i'll win but if it goes to turn six my opponent will probably win and so they redo you do that roll just to see you know, it all comes down to that three plus whether the, the whole game is now just a three plus my opponent wins because of what where we're at right now and then oh no we made it to turn six but if we pull this off i drew this card in and if i just do this one thing i can win but if i fail that then my opponent's gonna win that to me those are the best games 
And so you have to, if, but if your lists are overpowered, one or the other, then you, you're not going to get to that point because your, your opponent will just destroy you or you'll just destroy your opponent. So meet them at their level, try the different things from your codexes, and and just have the mindset of, of why you're going in there in the first place. Right. Um, yeah, the social contract you, you spoke about and doing your homework is, is definitely a big part of uh, building a competitive fun list. Um, I think I, I disagree with you in that what, what I think is fun um, personally, but I do see your point um, in that when, when you, for example, if you both you and your opponent nearly table each other by turn two, um, it opens the floor for like that random scout model that you painted that you maybe you painted his eye wrong so he's got like googly eyes right so it opens the door for that scout model to uh, you know be the last man to kill like your opponent's warlord on an objective and if he does it because it's a dice game that that model will forever be immortalized in your army he'll, he'll never get repainted he'll you might name him like Sam or I don't know what whatever right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it opens the door for scenarios like that, which which is also fun, right? Um, and th- those memorable moments in games um, are what people we all strive for, even even at the highest level in competitive play, right? Uh, at the Bay Area Open this past weekend, uh, Adam Gotti at the top table round five, um, he needed three things to go his way. He needed the Incarn to come down, kill Magnus, use the strength and death to make an eleven inch charge into some brimstone horrors to be the third unit or the third model to hold that objective. Um, and then he also needed his Hemlock Wraithfighter to take an entire turn of Psychic Phase and Shooting Phase of a Chaos Demon Army with one wound left to survive to, um, to uh, basically, it was like marked for death, so it needed to die, so his opponent, if he killed it, got points for it. He needed that Hemlock Wraithfighter to live. Um, it was this exciting, you know, fina- final photo finish. And then he needed the game to end, right? Like, it, it was crazy, but, but he did it, he pulled it off, um, and it was a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. So, exactly. Right. So um, another way, I, I the, another way other than doing your homework and social contracts, uh, another way I like to do it because um, I, I I like to go to the store to go to I like ushering new players into the game. I don't get to do it nearly as much as I used to, um, but when I did do it, I, I usually would uh, bring first off I just bring just my painted models. Um, if you have a as large a collection as as I do or, or not anymore, I sold a lot of my models. But back then when I had a, such a large guy, maybe like thirty thousand points in Ultramarines, like a full first company, a full third company, um, not all my models were painted. Not all my models were finished. It's just it was impossible. There were so I was buying way more models and they were just sitting on shelves than I than I could get painted. Um, so I I, I tried to specifically stick to fully painted converted models, even if they were subpar, right? And then I would shoehorn myself into just using those models. And then um, I'd basically make like these weird lists that made no sense. Um, but I would just use my tactic ability to to bring out the best in them. And hopefully I, I went into well. And those games are always a lot of fun. Um, and then another thing I like to do is I like to create a checklist. Uh, there There's elements to the game that make the game fun. Um, and in competitive games, tournament uh, lists, they they tend to like take those elements out of the game, right? Like, so if you're like an assault army, that first turn assaults, like you just want to charge your opponent's army turn one and make it so they don't have a shooting phase, right? You just want to stay in the combat phase, no psychic phase, no shooting, nothing, just assault phase, and that that's that's important because you're taking your opponent out of the game and taking kind of taking them out of their comfort zone. But for a fun game, that's very unfun. So there needs to be a lot of interaction. Um, so when you when I'm building a list for competitive fun, I, I I create my like a checklist. I'm like, okay, does is my list 
active in all the phases of the game. The you know does it have like kind of cool morale stuff? Maybe it does something cool to your opponent that makes hurts their morale a little bit. Does it have a psyker? Um, not too many psychers, just one psyker. Does it have some good shooting? Some good balance shooting? Can it kill uh, tanks? Uh, you know, high toughness models. Can it kill hordes? Um, not you know perfectly well, so that it demolishes those models, but just reasonably well enough. Um, does it have a close combat element? Does it have a a character that that truly is like a warlord, not like a thirty point company commander, just like an HQ tax, but like a true warlord that will that won't take over the game. But you know, if if you charge him, like you might think about not charging him because he's he's got he's pretty cool. We maybe have like a, a relic blade or whatever. You know, um, it's. It, it, this balance in interactions and um, trying to just take advantage of all the things the game has to offer. Um, so that's kind of what I do when I, when I build my list. Those, those are the two things I look at. Um, so, yeah, for sure. Uh, to me, when it when it comes down to it, if I look at something and I'm like, oh, it would be so cool to try this out, then you're on the right track, essentially. And if it's and it, and it's more motivated not because of how powerful it'll be, but because of how cool it'll look. Like um, I can't wait to have an opponent who will let me try an all Carnifex list out for my Tyranids, and I'll need to have a very specific opponent to do that against. Otherwise, it'll, it won't go very well either one way or the other. But just the fact that I can do it and it's a viable list in Eighth Edition makes it viable and not ridiculous is something I'm looking forward to. And just being able to kind of come up with these themed lists that are both. Um, have the ability to do well in the game, but also satisfy some other desire to, to, to stay to a theme. I think that's a big part of it as well. I'll do it. I'll, I'll bring 11 Dreadnoughts. You bring 11 oh. Carnifexes, I'll bring 11 <laughs> Dreadnoughts. Just a monster fight. <laughs> All right. Um, and then um, the final the final point is, are, are there any specific examples of mini wargaming bat reps or where you think you had two perfect list like, that were just the right amount of competitiveness and balance the, maybe they like they stuck in your head over the years um you, you know is, is there any examples of that that you can think of off the top of your head i know you you filmed hundreds and hundreds of battle reports but not really to be honest because once again it comes down to those moments like you talked about that there's lots of those moments where you just pull off something that you shouldn't be able to pull off uh, like an insane number of six plus saves or you know killing something that you shouldn't have killed or staying alive when you shouldn't have stayed alive and those stick out in my mind more than what the list even was uh right. so I, I it's it's hard to say because um i don't believe that you're ever going to get this perfect balance in the two lists heck they could be mirror matchups and technically they're still not going to be balanced because somebody gets to go first or the way the table is set up in fact i it's it's funny when i when i first started playing 40k and we would set up terrain I'd always try to make it as symmetrical as possible because I'm like, oh, I don't want terrain to favor one side over the other. But then I played Infinity for a while, which um, actually encourages asymmetrical terrain placement because it's because it, there's this big component of the game, which is who's choosing which side they're going to actually deploy on. It's a big part of the game. But if it's symmetrical, then who cares about that entire part of the game? And so I started creating asymmetrical terrain for our battle reports. And that, that to me made that much more a part of the game. The terrain was, as a lot of people say, the terrain's the third player. And in 8th edition, it's a little different than 7th with terrain. I'm not a huge fan of what they did with terrain. But it's still important, even just for line of sight. Forget cover for a second, but it's important for line of sight blockage. 
and and we use a lot of it. If you, if you, if the tournament table it looks very different than the, what we set up for our battle reports. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. And so I think I think that's a dramatic part of it as well. That would be we'd be remiss if we don't talk about that. Because if you if you if you create the perfect list and then you have three pieces of terrain on the table, then that's going to play very differently than if you have a city fight board, where you'll be lucky if you can see 18 inches away. And those are two extremes, of course. But um, you find somewhere in the middle, or heck, don't. You know, agree with your opponent. Hey, we're going to do one with tons of terrain and it's going to look gorgeous, but it's going to be a pain in the butt, and you're never going to be able to shoot more than two feet. But that's okay because both players are ready for that. But um, that that just makes it so even a perfect list. Like in chess, chess is the best example of symmetrical lists, and yet even there, it's proven that white wins. I think fifty-two percent of the time. Yes, going first it, gives you slight yeah. advantage. Yes, be, yeah, exactly, and that's perfectly mirrored lists. And and yet going first in a game of chess gives you, if all things being equal, you you'll win more often than you won't. So obviously, in a game that is way less balanced, like forty k. Where no matter what you do, somebody can seize the initiative. And if you're just playing friendly games, they can re-roll seize the initiative with one of their stupid command points. Then uh, you're just, what do you plan for? How do you plan for a one in three chance, pretty much, of not even getting to go first, even though you got to choose to go first? Like, like where where is your perfection there of any balance? And you just don't have it, and it's okay. Uh, as long as you're not skewed one way or the other, as long as you're somewhere meeting close together, then it should be a half-decent game. And if not, well, then play again. Oh, well. Right. Um, one specific uh, moment um, I remember, I just wanted to bring this up because um, I loved it so much. The very first Fate of Fayum campaign um, that you guys ran, the back the Necr Necrons versus Tyranid, very fun campaign, yeah. narrative campaign to watch. Um, I remember Necron Lord, I forgot his name. Kanum. Uh, Kanum, yeah, he threw the spear um, at the very last turn to kill the uh, Tyranid. I think it was a Norn Queen. Well, he was he was inside of a Synapse Hive ship. He was inside of a Synapse Hive ship, and he needed to kill the the the, the, synapse, the brain or whatever. The brain, yeah. Um, and it was on his final throw. He finally got it. It's been venting all game, like not basically failing. Um, and he finally got it, and it turned the campaign for the Necrons. It's so long ago. I don't, I don't remember everything else, um, but I do remember that one moment. And I thought the battle report leading up to that moment was was a blast. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Sorry for the tangent. Well, that that no no that's that, that's interesting that you say that because yeah he was losing. He had yes. a one use only as a tachyon arrow, which back in sixth edition was a one use only weapon, strength mm -hmm. ten, AP one, and the rule was that um, he had to get to a certain point of the board. And then he had one throw, and so it was like a three to hit. I think it was still like a, it might have been a three or two to wound, and then there was still a some sort of involve or something, and it all went through. And he was the last model alive. The Tyranids were swarming in, and he was about to die. And yeah, he, he pulled that off. And that set, it was such a pivotal moment that I based the rest of the campaign around the fact that he then overthrew the other overlord. He'd started a civil war. And Kanum has now appeared in at least two other narrative campaigns, and he's become this whole character of his own because of moments like that. We've yes. had, we have several characters for our narrative campaigns where things have happened like that, where they were just minor characters, but then something ridiculous happens, and they become everybody's favorite, whereas the major characters just kind of go on mediocre-like, and, and they never really they never really establish themselves, not usually. Yeah, um, yeah and th that's, those are the kind of moments that, that everyone should be working towards building. 
Um, maybe not like a, in a narrative campaign or, or such a grand thing. Um, sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, it might be S simple Scout Sam who decided to kill the Chaos Warlord, you know, a Chaos Lord fully decked out and he got lucky, killed him, um, and then he, he'll be immortal forever. Uh, yeah. So uh, um, using some BAO examples of fun lists that you might find uh, at a tournament, um, because they do exist, I, I swear, I promise, I saw a few. Um, if you go to our Facebook page on Frontline Gaming, um, there's a video cast of uh, an Astro Militarum or a Militarum Tempestus list. Then this beautiful Arctic camo theme um, ran by a really nice gentleman from Texas, Brian Hart. Um, he was playing uh, another really nice guy, Dustin, and Dustin was running his Black Templar. Um, and traditionally, if you were to look at those two lists, you would see the Black Templar list. You're like, oh, it's a Space Marine list. Without Gilliman, um, he's not spamming Storm Ravens. Uh, I think he had like one flyer, a Stormhawk Interceptor. So not even a, a flyer that's good at killing Astro Militarum with no flyers, right? So just just like this flyer, um, he had like a, a Venerable Dreadnought, some Rhinos. It was just a really weird hodgepodge of a list, but it was Black Templars, and it was cool. Um, and he actually beat Brian Hart. Brian Hart was running a lot of Toroxes. Now, now Brian is not a competitive min-maxing player. His list looked like it, but he's been running that list since Militarum Pestis came out. Um, so this is just his moment. Um, but he, he had uh, a lot of Toroxes, Deep Striking Scions, um, Manticores. It was just it was a, a brutal-looking list. Uh, and Brian lost, um, because Dustin just played... He basically took the center of the board. Um, there was a point where like, this Vindicare is like, in the building trying to shoot Dustin's Warlord down inside the building. And the Black Templar had to like go up three stores to three uh, floors to get it. Um, this is all a really fun campaign or a, a tournament game. Um, but I, I think, I think it's, it's important to look at uh, lists like, like Dustin's lists that are hodgepodges and just go like, well, you know, th they can still compete and this is eighth edition. Um, so don't be afraid to, to run those lists at tournaments um, and just run whatever you have and whatever you want to play. That's basically my point. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that's all the time we have. Uh, Matt, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your experience, um, you know, crafting lists for Battle Reports, for Mini Wargaming. Is is there anything interesting going on in Mini Wargaming in the coming weeks that you want to announce? Uh, we're filming several videos every day, so it's hard to pinpoint one thing. Obviously, we've started filming our Death Watch narrative campaign. I think even by the time this podcast comes out, it still will not have been published because we're trying to get most of it filmed before we put it out, but it's going to be a fun, zany, but yet there's still, there's, there's part serious, part fun, just like orcs are, uh, the death watch. And so these, you can watch out for that. And we'll have published a lot of stuff on our Facebook page, um, showing off the models and things. Cause we, cause our, our painter slash converter Lee, he custom built 10 orcs and like using Ogryn bodies and like, they're huge. They're just, they're just enormous. And, and it's awesome, and we're having a lot of fun with that. So you can stay tuned for that, as well as all our usual Battle Report content and other narrative campaigns and other games that we're going to be covering as well. All right. All right, and before I let you go, Matt, I just would like to say thank you once again, but also, you know, you would make one heck of a tournament player. <laughs> it's not my scene. It's just I don't enjoy it. It's That's the funny thing. Like, I, I can think tactically, but I just, when I go to a tournament and I see somebody put down five flyerants and five mucolids part of me just dies oh, I, I just I, I look at it and i'm like oh i get it 
I totally get it. like okay one last thing before we finish the I just played a game yesterday actually it was I was playing my Tyranids and I'm like I want to build a brigade so I was going along I only had three troop choices but I had put like six elites in there I had I, I was like okay my fastest hex slots what can I use for my three and I'm like well the mucolids and the spore mines are really cheap and I just couldn't bring myself to do that so I brought gargoyles even though they're not they're they're more expensive. I still filled it with gargoyles. I just couldn't bring myself to try to build up the brigade with mucolids. And because I didn't put the spore mines in there, I was not able to actually get enough troop choices, and so I didn't end up doing a brigade. And so I, I actually just decided not to go that higher command point just because I couldn't bring myself to do that. And not that I would never do it, but the player I was going up against, it, he wasn't the type of player that I needed to build this super min-max list that was a brigade. And so I just I just couldn't do it. And so I, I, I'm, I'm sure I could have fun at a tournament, but it's just just not what I want to do when I play. I just, I, I love playing narrative and casual games. Fair enough. But, 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 but one last, let me just, one last counterpoint to maybe get you on board. Wouldn't it be so satisfying to beat like a five flyer list with your, your hodgepodge, fun, quirky Necron list? Wouldn't that be like <laughs> a blast? You're like, ah, I, I, I David Slade Goliath. Maybe, uh. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. The, the few times I've done tournaments, that, that wasn't my experience. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I'm not, I'm not saying there's not a place for it. I'm not saying at all that there's, I'm not going to say that just because I don't like it, that they, that people shouldn't be doing it. Of course, right. it's a great, it's a great part of the game. I watch StarCraft battle reports all the time. There's no way I would ever play the game to like a one hundredth what those guys play to get to that level. And yet I enjoy watching them. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, so. Yeah, they're a lot of fun to watch. Um, yeah, so you can you can you can have this aspect of the hobby, and I still do research on tournament lists. So when I'm building my list too, so I can know what's really good, and I can try out new things. But you'll never see me just most likely never see me just bring a straight up tournament list to one of our battle reports. All right, well I'll keep trying. Well, one day. <laughs> All right, Matt, thank you very much for coming on. You have a good day, buddy. Thank you very much.